Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Gangster Chronicles podcast is a weekly conversation that revolves around the underworld. From criminals and entertainers to victims of crime and law enforcement, we cover all facets of the game. Gangster Chronicles podcast doesn't glorify or promote illicit activities. We just discuss the ramifications and repercussions of these activities. Because after all, if you play gangster games, you are ultimately rewarded with gangster prizes. Our Heart Radio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find the Gangster Chronicles podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. This is Roxanne Gay, the host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Each week I talk to an interesting person about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. We can't escape politics. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? I'm Rashad Bilal. And I am Troy Millings, and we are the hosts of the Earn Your Leisure Podcast, where we break down business models and examine the latest trends in finance. We hold court and have exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in business, sport and entertainment. From DJ Khaled to Mark Cuban, Rick Ross, and Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, our alumni list is expansive. Listen in as our guests reveal their business models, hardships, and triumphs in their respective fields. The knowledge is in-depth, and the questions are always delivered from your standpoint. We want to know what you want to know. We talk to the legends of business, sports, and entertainment about how they got their start, and most importantly, how they make their money. Earn Your Leisure is a college business class mixed with pop culture. Want to learn about the real estate game? Unclear as how the stock market works? We got you. 
Interested in starting a trucking company or a vending machine business? Not really sure about how taxes or credit work? We got it all covered. The Earn Your Leisure podcast is available now. Listen to Earn Your Leisure on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast that I opened perfectly as a professional, as a man who makes all of his money from no podcasts. No notes. Cave. Uh, no <laughs> Yes. How's syphilis doing these days? You don't hear a lot it's, from syphilis. Is it is it holding up okay? Yeah, it's around. It's fine. Thank you for asking. Good. I'm glad um, to know that. It's not the same threat it used to be. It comes back in waves every now and then. That's it good. has That's it good. had a good run for a couple it's, of years. It's kind of like recently. Star Trek, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of no, comes in it, and out. It, well, I don't think there's like new versions of it. I think oh. it's like the same good old syphilis pretty much. I don't think it changes drastically. So it's like Star Trek on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, good to hear from Syphilis. This has been your Syphilis update. That's going to do it for us this week. Uh, until next week, I've been Robert Evans, uh, Dr. Kavehoda, and of course, Garrison Davis. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. No, that's not it. It would be pretty funny to just do that, Sophie, to just <laughs> drop a one and a half minute <laughs> episode on Syphilis. But, but, but only if we put in 15 <laughs> ads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we really, like every word, we have a full ad break in between. Yeah, then then people would probably complain less about the 900 ads that are in our episodes right now. Mm-hmm. I can right. talk about syphilis. What are we, do what are we doing about. right now? What is this episode about? Kave, what, what, what's going on? Uh, I'm assuming you guys want to talk about uh, the coronavirus, or uh, I don't know, I could talk about whatever you want, but I think that's probably what you guys brought me on for. All right, what do we? What is this coronavirus? Is this a problem? It's a little problem. Okay, um, <laughs> that's not good to hear. It's oh, it's it's not great, Sophie. Uh, why didn't you give me a heads up on this? Oh yeah, that that's me not giving you a heads up on the plague. The thing yeah, we've been I, talking I didn't, about. I didn't hear anything about this. Uh, okay. Is this no, why feel... all the masks? Yeah, that's, <laughs> this is the mask thing. That's okay. why you the got mask. those. <laughs> that's why you got those two jabs in your arms in that random parking lot. Oh, I thought that was heroin. Sorry to can, disappoint. <laughs> First of all, can can we talk about the use of the word jab? I don't love it. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it, you're not James Bond. You don't, let's not use jab. Yeah, I, I prefer that's the fair. term. That's fair. I, I prefer what I think is the proper medical term, vein fucked. <laughs> yeah. But it's not really your vein either. It's really just intramuscular fucked. Oh, right. Muscle fucked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, what what are the cool kids calling it? Is it a poke? What do we want? Yeah, to call Garrison. It? What do the teens call yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Is it? Are they calling it the TikToks? Yeah, it's called it's called the TikTok. I don't know. I've I've been <laughs> been working on, uh, I've been working on a uh, all all day today. I've been working to find this proud boy who's pretending to take COVID vaccines, but is actually steroids. Um, and <laughs> he calls them critical support. He calls them extracurriculars. Okay, um, so. That honestly rules. That's extremely funny. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping an article will be out by the time this podcast airs. So, uh, who's the <laughs> article for? 
Uh, I'm not sure yet. I'm talking with Opossum Press. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, that's funny. Garrison, what is today's episode about? What are we well, doing we, here? we we want to talk to we wanted to talk to Kava about both what the current plague situation is because a lot of people seem to think it's over. A lot of people seem to think it's not over. Um, and then also, how is COVID and all the stuff still affecting our hospital and medical system? Um, is there supply shortages for medical supplies? What's going on in different areas? <clears throat> Staffing. Yeah, because yeah. all of that, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Got you. Yes is the answer. Yes it is, is the answer. <laughs> it's it's the answer. It, yeah, it's a it's still a problem. I don't think. Uh, don't listen to anyone who tells you that it's not. Um, don't listen to anyone who gives you too sunny a forecast on it. But it you know it's different in different places. Is the long and the short of it? Okay. In places where the vaccinations are higher and where there's mandates and there's reasonable laws about things, the rates are going down. Shout out in California. Places, California, but also like Rhode Island, Maine, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont. These are places with high vaccination rates. The rates of cases are going down in those places. Places like Mississippi, West Virginia, Idaho, Alabama. These are places where like it's 40 to 49% vaccination rates and the cases are going way up. You you guys might have heard of a couple of things happening like there was that 46-year-old guy named Daniel Wilkinson. He's like a vet who developed something called gallstone pancreatitis, which I could talk to you guys about for hours. Mm-hmm. Well, I won't. Don't worry. But okay. I could. I'm just letting you know I could. I and won't. There's, um, I mean, he in died. Idaho, they just declared. Been. It's not a total DNR, but like anyone who has um, cardiac arrest is is on a DNR now in Idaho because they just don't have the resources to be. Well, that's not entire. I mean, that's Okay. So that, what, that, what, that, what did I get spread. wrong there? Yeah. Okay. So that's not your fault that you got it wrong because there, there were doctors that were sort of spreading that yeah. story about. Now, they are in what's called a crisis standard of care. but and, and, and part of that means that hospitals could go to putting everyone on DNR, which means do not resuscitate. Yeah, yeah. Right. Which means if you have a, a cardiac arrest, they won't do anything about it. That's, that's not what's actually happening. It could happen. What, what, when they institute this crisis standard of care, what it means is that if a hospital gets so short on their ventilators – and they just don't have any more room, then they could implement that. I mean, I don't know. I haven't heard of anyone. I was I was asking around uh, to see if any doctors in Idaho could tell me of a hospital that's actually doing it. I haven't seen or heard of one that's actually doing it yet, but they could. The point is, it's it's that bad. Yeah. Where that's a reasonable discussion where doctors have to discuss, kind of like they were back in the day in New York, where they have to be like, okay, does this person do we put the you know the 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 young lady on the the ventilator or the old guy you know then we have to decide and they make those decisions it's really awful it's a position no doctor wants to be in and now that's becoming a reality it's brutal it's brutal out there and right. and that's bleeding into other states nearby you know so is that what you a, mean by the Wilkerson situation because his doctor like couldn't find uh, a, an ICU bed for him is that the is that the story you're talking about that's the story. So he was this guy who had a problem that can be fixed. I mean, it's a procedure called an ERCP that he can get done at specialty centers. And he didn't live far from Houston. Mm-hmm. And Houston has plenty of those specialty centers that can do it. They have mm-hmm. great gastroenterologists like myself. Not as good, but, you know, same sort of thing. And they could <laughs> do it if they, if they, you know, if they had the availability to get him in. But they didn't, and so he died of something that he shouldn't have. Is basically the the that example, and I'm sure there's more examples of that. And what really worries me is 
the examples that you're not hearing yet, like sure. cases that are delayed now, cancer screening things that are being delayed now in these hospitals mm-hmm. that we're going to be paying down the road. That's that's the shit that really scares me. Great. And like just people not going in for things in general, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have friends other than you who work in ERs and stuff, um, nurses and, and a doctor. Um, and Bullshit. It's up in the P&W. <laughs> <laughs> but the shit they're saying is like, in today's crap. Like, like I, they are working on like building capacity and making sure they have things to like treat their friends because it's like the advice is do not go to the hospital. Like if, if, if at all possible, like because there's just not capacity. For you, unless it's like literally an immediate life and death thing, it's it's almost uh, uh, not worth like trying because there's just nothing. There's no slack. The system is, and it's 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 starting to turn. It looks like here in 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 the Portland area, but like it's it's frightening. Like these are not people who would be bullshitting or or are 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 prone to panic. You know, they're ER professionals, but yeah. um. It it's it's fucked up. Like it's it's it it's this thing where like the scary thing to me is not even necessarily where we are right now because it it does like there is some kind of broadly positive news in a lot of areas about like where the pandemic is going. It's just like this situation won't be fixed when case numbers go down. It's 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 yeah. going to be permanent damage has been done to the system. And I guess what I'm wondering, first off, like to from what you're seeing, like what. What is the extent of the permanent damage done to our our emergency medical system in particular and our our ability to even like get care uh at the moment? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't I don't know. It kind of goes back to I think what Garrison wanted to talk about, which is like the collapse of the medical system. I, yeah. I think we talk about it a lot in terms of we're on the edge of collapse, we're near collapse. I think there are places in this country where it already has collapsed. I think that's pretty evident. It's really, it's not homogeneous in any way across this country. There are certainly places that are better than others. And and there's certainly places that have a lot more uh, leeway and flexibility, but everywhere is strained right now. And in, in regards to your question about permanent damage, I'll answer that in regards to just the personnel, you know, cause because um, of the show that I have, the house of pod, follow us on Twitter at the house of pod. And I talked to a lot of doctors and nurses from all over the country. Uh, I talked to them a lot, and mm-hmm. it's bad. I mean, the stress that they're under, the PTSD that they're that they're dealing with, the burnout, the level of burnout is just intense. It's intense, and and it's. I think we were talking about moral injury and burnout before all this started, and now it is to a point where I I don't know what's going to happen to the medical system just in terms of the the personnel when this is all over. I know a lot of people who are getting out of medicine, getting out of clinical medicine. I mean, out of like I would I would say out of just my immediate friend group, I can think of a couple offhand excellent doctors, really great ICU ER doctors who are already planning their exit. And when I don't know, I mean, in the next coming years. That's going to be a major issue, and I don't know how we're going to address that. And our nurses in the ICUs, man, the stuff they have to put up with is is insane. You just see mm-hmm. it in their eyes; their eyes look broken. Like mm-hmm. I was, I volunteered on the the wards uh, a couple weeks ago, and people, the doctors and the nurses taking care of these COVID patients day in day out. Like they, there's like a little 
bit of their soul that's been broken. Yeah. You can just see it in their eyes. Like, I was there for like just a week, and it's terrifying. You yeah. Know? You're going into a room with a patient with COVID, it's scary. You know, even no matter how much PPE, protective equipment you have on, like, you're always a little scared. And, and I just think years of that, I, that weighs on a person in a way I don't, I mean, I, I am worried about. It. I don't know how we're going to address that. <sighs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and it's frustrating because, like, from the from the perspective of people listening, right? The thing you want to ask is like, "Well, how can I help?" And it's like, "Well, you can't because you're already if you're listening to the show. I assume you're masking. I assume you've gotten vaccinated. If you don't have like a condition that that renders you unable to get the vaccine, you're you're. I I, I think our listeners tend to be pretty responsible people. It's just not enough because thirty to forty percent of the country decided to like Leroy Jenkins a plague, and um, God. <laughs> I, uh, Garrison, do you know that reference? Is that yeah, do you get that reference, Garrison? I'm, I'm familiar with Leroy Jenkins. That's okay. good. That's good. Were you born when Leroy Jenkins became a thing? I don't know. You would have been like three. I would have been yeah. young. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? It was Deadpool that brought him to your attention, isn't it? No, no. I, I it, it came to my attention just doing general internet nonsense. Yeah, it was yeah. one of yeah, the yeah. first. It was the first meme that you could show your parents, pretty much. I guess there were like Badger, Badger, Mushroom, a couple of others in that category. But like it was one of the first memes that wasn't a man's gaping asshole prolapsed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I showed my parents that all the time. I don't uh, know. What oh, you're yeah. Talking no. About. Yeah. There was a beautiful moment but back in the day GI when somebody goat seed a stadium. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's what this brought what you I into saw? medicine. This is what I saw at work. They were so proud of me. They're mm-hmm. like, look at, look at our son. Look at our boy. Look at our boy. He can tell us exactly why that man's asshole looks that way. I <laughs> uh, have a weird job. Mm-hmm. I guess one of my questions is, with the assumption that people are taking the actual plague-related steps they can to reduce their burden to the medical system, what can people realistically do? I mean, I think part of that is, and this is, and I'm not going to have you to like explain how you can take care of your own medical treatments in an emergency <laughs> on a podcast. That's not the time or the place. Although I do think it's probably a good idea for people to read up on first aid and basic life-saving emergency. Like it's always a good idea to to, to have yeah. some some yeah. training there. But yeah, I mean, do you have other advice? You know, I, I, you're exactly right. The people that are listening to this podcast are totally on board already, and they're super supportive. And we appreciate that. I mean, that is not unnoticed. I mean, um, you know, it's having people like uh, outside the hospitals every now and then applauding doctors. I know it's cheesy, but it's great. I'll take that over the Blue Angels flying overhead any day. Yeah. You know, so it's that that stuff is really important. And masking and taking care of themselves is is great. You know, um, the 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 real practical things that people can do i think uh is help contribute to sites that will help get the rest of the world vaccinated mm-hmm. i mean we can definitely talk about that the the question of boosters here versus you know vaccines for the first time elsewhere but there that's the one thing i would recommend right now if you want to help um let's put our money into places where we can get vaccines to other places and I, I think that every little bit of that helps in the long run. And and that's the sort of thing that, that we could use. Other than that, I mean, I, I just hope that people are still going into medicine and in nursing, you know? I, I, that's the only thing I can yeah. still hope is that people who have an interest in it 
you know, continue to to do it. And and for those people who are just they're training those yeah. years of their formative years or during this time, I just want to let them know, I swear it gets better. <laughs> it's not always going to be like this. And if you make it through this, you're going to be an amazing uh, clinician. You're going to be an amazing nurse. You're going to be an amazing doctor. And I really want you guys to keep doing it. That's that's one thing I would say, too. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'll certainly add that if you're someone who's contemplating a medical career, please. please. I mean, just from a... There's a couple of things on that, like just from a perspective of what the world needs, it's what the world needs. But also, if you're listening to the stuff we're saying about the crumbles, about the possibility of the collapse, if you're someone who who foresees things getting potentially much more difficult in the future, not a lot of things more useful in a bad situation than somebody with medical training. <laughs> I know? do count on that to getting me through the apocalypse. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm soft. I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. I went camping and I couldn't handle it. A couple weeks ago, I went camping. It was awful. Mm. There was so much dust. It was an awful experience. But I just thought, if the apocalypse comes, I will hopefully get uh, placed in a very nice tent because I'm a doctor. So I, I'm counting on that to get me through. There are there are so many <laughs> dumbass boogaloo type, quote unquote, preppers who who. Focus on the guns and the gear and the the dried food, but and the throwing you know, knives and the shirt throwing and... knives, but don't even have an IFAC, an individual first aid kit, or like a tourniquet. And like the talk to you, talk to like like I mean, this is a little off topic, but like talk to combat marines about like their favorite person. It's always the corpsman. It's the guy who knows or the lady who knows mm-hmm. how to like patch a bullet wound and whatnot. Yeah, like there's there's nothing more useful. In any situation, pretty much that that is dangerous than somebody who can do medicine. So please, if you're if you're studying to do medicine, if you're contemplating becoming an EMT or a paramedic or a nurse or whatever, good God, we need you so badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, we've talked a, a little bit about just kind of the medical system in general, and then we can also kind of discuss more stuff related to how COVID's impacting certain areas more than others. And like, let's say someone who's someone who, who's listening, who's in one of these areas that is, has only 40% vaccinated, you know, not, not a lot of people are going around with masks on and, you know, schools starting back up. Maybe they have kids who are going to their school system. I know in Texas, they have, you know, child deaths are rising. That sounds very frightening to be that kind of person who like, you know, would like, like to see that stuff happen in their state, but it's just not really possible. And I don't know, with so much of the rest of the world kind of slowly taking back restrictions, it, I'm sure it feels very jarring to be in a situation like that and kind of like there's really nothing you can do, right? Besides, yeah. right? Because you could talk to your fr- family, talk to your friends, but like overall, it's hard to Im- hard to make, you know, a, a big impact in a state, you know, like Texas, Alabama, like uh, all, Idaho, all the ones that you that you were mentioning before. From a medical kind of perspective, is there is there any way people can kind of start to talk about those things with their family? And because the way we've been trying to get people to take the vaccine with the marketing we've been doing has not been super successful in these demographics. Um, do you think there's other like, conversations that can get people to slowly kind of be more be more able to you know com- yeah contemplate that? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. It's particularly tough if you're someone who is believes in the importance of vaccines and your or the importance of masks and that sort of thing, and you're in a place where you're uh, a minority. That is tough. Uh, the first thing I'll say is definitely know that the vaccine 
helps. You're in a much better position mm-hmm. because of the vaccine. When I was on the wards and I was looking at patients, the they're almost all unvaccinated. And those are the people that end up in the hospital. Hmm. You can still get into the hospitalized if you have the vaccine, but it's it's much less likely. And you know, not that these people don't count; they count just as much. But if you don't have an underlying problem like a liver transplant or some immunosuppression, then you're less likely to to have a really bad outcome with uh, COVID if you're vaccinated. So just know that it helps. You still might get it; it'll suck, um, yeah. but. For the most part, you're going to stay out of the hospital. And that really, I think, is something to have a little comfort in. It really does seem to work. You know, outside of that, the the schools thing is is a real concern for me. And I'm going to feel a lot better. And we're going to be in a much better position once we are able to get kids vaccinated. Yeah. And so there's there's two things. You guys probably heard that there was um, this this committee that met to advise the FDA about booster shots. Yep. That's one thing. So booster shots are going to go out to people who need them, uh, 65 and older people at high risk, uh, people in high risk occupations. They're going to like frontline workers. So there's going to be booster shots coming out. And then the data is coming out now about five to 11. Five to 11. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty promising. Um, it looks like they're going to do okay with lower doses. So they use about one third, the dose of the okay. vaccine that the adults get, and it seems to work. We haven't seen much other than the pre-press release from uh, Pfizer, but yeah. you know, if you really pick at it, it looks promising. So uh, I, I am. that's something that makes me hopeful. That's something I'm definitely uh, clinging to. I think there's no way we're getting out of this without vaccinating kids. That uh, just has to happen. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think once that starts rolling out, and hopefully it will soon. I mean, I don't want to put a date on it, but... I'm hoping within the next couple months this starts happening. So, you know, once once that starts happening, I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable. I think people in those situations are going to feel a lot more comfortable too. Yeah. Ugh. The the booster thing is an interesting question to me. I mean, yeah, the, from an ethical this, standpoint, particularly. You know, I I think I think it's a, not a fair narrative to say it has to be one or the other. And I think people are saying that. I don't think I think we can do it. I think we can produce enough vaccine here for people who haven't got it yet and enough for the boosters and start supplying more to the world. I mean, we can do more. Our government sure, and yeah. Pfizer and Moderna definitely need to do more in that regards. They definitely need to do more in terms of uh, production. They haven't hit their goals in a lot of these places. and But it's also not like they haven't done anything yet. They gave about like a, you know, 200 million doses are being donated just this week, I think. So they are doing things. It's happening. It's just we need more of it. Everything needs. We need more of it. We need to ramp up production. Yeah, it's weird because, like, you're right. We could produce enough vaccines for the places that don't have them, and enough vaccines for boosters over here. And all it would take is a couple of months of our Afghanistan mad money. But we're not going to do that. And so it 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 probably will like. I don't know, contribute to an issue of vac. There's a, there's a chance that it will contribute to an issue of vaccine unavailability. But also, it's not like if we don't get the boosters, those vaccines will be available because we're just not giving them out. Yeah, in the extent that we need. So I yeah, I don't know. I, I understand what you're saying. I'll get the booster if they decide to give out boosters because I like not having not permanent dying of the plague damage or, due to or COVID getting, or getting long COVID. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That that seems great. 
And a, a, a lot of the vaccine hesitancy kind of relies, tracks back to how we've been marketing it. And I'm, I've, I've been on the team that's like, we should stop using Fauci because every time Fauci goes on TV to talk about vaccines, yeah. more people are going to do like a backfire effect. He'd be like, no, I'm not going to get it because I don't trust Fauci. So there is a particular like marketing thing that I think we've failed on. Like America is very good at marketing when we can make money, but when it's not related to getting gaining more profit, I think the government's very bad at marketing yeah. these types of things. Um, yeah. And on the kind of the marketing side of things, I don't know. This is this is kind of old news at this point, but the whole swollen testicles thing, um, which we, have, we you have not talked about on this show about, but I'm sure you have thoughts about how this thing has kind of ballooned, which is that can be like the testicles, like the testicles, exactly. Yeah, friend. Yeah. So how how the marketing and misinformation relates to this cold kind current kind of current problem? Yeah. Yeah, first of all, that particular story, I mean, that's hilarious. I mean, like this. I've never I've never seen someone's excuse for venereal disease become such an international issue. Yeah, which is contribute to the great. deaths probably of hundreds of people. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's the marketing thing is a really great question and 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 it's been driving me crazy because like part of me at this point just wants to be like get the fucking vaccine. What the fuck's wrong with you? Get the fucking vaccine. Part of my language. And like um, but then the part of me knows that that doesn't work. Like, right. I do believe doctors should be able to express their frustration. Yeah. Um, they need to be able to do that. If we can't do that right now, I mean, it's game over. They need to at least have that ability where doctors can voice their frustration with anti-vaxxers, but still give them the same high level of care that we're always going to give them no matter what when they show up in the hospital. But it's not working to do that. We need other approaches. I don't. I don't entirely know what they are. There are some people that are, that are so far out there that we're just never going to reach. The people, sure. the microchip people, there's like a level of deprogramming that will need to happen to those people that we just, it, it's too exhausting to yeah. do that. You really have yeah. to like, it, you can't scale that in any meaningful way for the country. I, I mean, think, I, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I think calling it the Trump vaccine was the closest we got to having yeah, that be a possibility. Fuck, yeah. And that yeah, yeah. fucking, I'm interested in your thoughts on the fucking Breitbart article. And, and if you're not aware, oh, because God. you're less online than us, and God bless you if you are, Breitbart, <laughs> the, which is, I don't know, CNN for fascists, came out with an article blaming the Democrats for the fact that Republicans don't want to take the vaccine and saying yep. it's a secret liberal plot to exterminate conservatives because conservatives <laughs> refuse to take vaccines because they're fundamentally oppositional defiant. Um, and like it's it's the fault of people who are telling them to take the vaccine that they're not taking the vaccine because obviously why would you trust a liberal on anything? Reverse but also they're trying psychology. to kill us and we're going to lose the election because we're all dying because we <laughs> refuse to get vaccinated for a preventable disease. Anyway, how do you feel about that comment? <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't love it. I don't love it. Um, I'm vaguely familiar with Breitbart. I don't know that exact uh, article because yeah. I have enough pain in my life already. Sure. Fair yeah. enough. But, um, but it, you know, I do wonder, it's like when they put out articles like this, or when Tucker Carlson goes out and he, he does his thing uh, questioning vaccine, just asking questions about vaccines that lead to vaccine hesitancy, like what calculations are they doing? Are they doing calculations? Is this just him being callous and not giving a fuck and just doing it? Or is there some calculation that him and some sort of right-wing think tank are doing where they're like, hey, look, this sells to our audience. They love it. Let's keep doing it. Yes, we are going to lose X portion of our audience because of this, 
but we still have plenty of audience left. Like, I don't, I wonder how that's happening. Like, it is hurting, it is true, it is hurting them more than than other people. It's hurting everyone. Everyone's getting affected by this. Um, but it's those states that are being affected, the people not getting vaccinated who are listening to people like Tucker Carlson. So I don't, I don't understand what their end game is here. Like, this is their market. Why, why not protect it? And that I do not have a good answer for. I was hoping one of you guys would. Um, you know, it's there's a lot going on there. I think a decent chunk of it is the assumption that whatever they lose in terms of dead followers won't be worth more than continuing the cash bonanza that is owning the libs. Right. Because that's all they that's all that's the entirety of the right wing media. It's just owning the lips. It's just oppositional defiant. It's just hating anything Democrats do. So you you kind of can't you're a cuck if you tell people to receive basic medical care if Democrats are taking that basic medical care. Right. Um, so it's a pride <laughs> thing for a lot of them. Um, two, two, two things I love <laughs> is when you when you use the word cuck. Or when you do Ben yeah. Shapiro's voice, like those are yeah. like two of my favorite things that you do. <laughs> it's um, we're, you we're say so it really well. Far beyond anything rational on the right, um, and it's it's difficult to like. I I I think the calculation is just like I think a lot of these guys. It's the same thing with climate change. Like they're smart enough to know that they're contributing to uh, yeah. an uninhabitable world, but they want to cash in first. They want to get right. as much as they can out before it falls apart. And I think that's all any of these people care about because I think you, there are the true believers. The radio guys are true believers, right? The, yeah. the radio guys who keep dying because yeah, they dying. don't get vaccinated. Right. Those guys did believe yeah. that it was some sort of weird conspiracy. It was yeah. the communists, the whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, clearly because the they die mid management level yeah mid management level they don't know all yeah. the stuff that they're being told from the evidence keeps pouring in at this point the facts are undeniable it's an open and shut case Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. In my best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Above, and they kind of believe it enough to where they kill themselves for the company. I think for Tucker, it's more a matter of like, hey, I keep making money and I maintain my power if I if I continue to hold this line. You you lose power, you get weaker. It's like when Trump got booed for telling people to take the fucking vaccine. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Crazy. You, you can't go back with this shit. You just can't. And you certainly can't admit to ever having been wrong. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. It's good shit. What a, f- what a fun note to end the episode yeah. on. What a good society we've built. Love <laughs> us. Oh, my God. Bravo. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, Kava, people can find you by looking up the House of Pod. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, slightly less depressing, but not not super uplifting either at this point. Uh, follow us at the House of Pod at Twitter, and uh, you can listen to our podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll talk about medical type things, but not so deep into the woods that it's not entertaining. I hope. Yeah, and, fuck the woods. Um, yeah, fuck the woods. We have fun guests ranging from the world's best medical experts to you know uh you guys people like all, us the not world's the best show. medical experts yeah you guys are right up there oh no, well, let okay. me tell you for medicine right mm-hmm. there's no better medicine than just a big fat pile of cocaine and the good thing about cocaine mm. is it's a sterilizing agent so if you're worried mm. about covid getting in your nasal passages just rail cocaine before you and after you go into the store it's like getting a covid test but more fun Legally, I have to tell you that's false. Well, we all have our opinions about how cocaine works. <laughs> well, you have your facts, and <laughs> yeah. I have my facts. I have my oh, facts. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go pick up a single item at the grocery store. Hey, Lethal listeners. Tig here. Last season on Lethal Lit, you might remember I came to Hollow Falls on a mission, clearing my Aunt Beth's name and making sure justice was finally served. But I hadn't counted on a rash of new murderers tearing apart the town. 
My mission put myself and my friends in danger. Though it wasn't all bad. I'm gonna be real with you, Tig. I like you. But now, all signs point to a new serial killer in Hollow Falls. If this game is just starting, you better believe I'm gonna win. I'm Tig Torres, and this is Lethal Lit. Catch up on season one of the hit murder mystery podcast, Lethal Lit, a Tig Torres mystery, out now. And then tune in for all new thrills in season two, dropping weekly starting February 9th. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. Listen to Lethal Lit on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're the hosts of the science podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where every week we get to explore some of the weirdest questions in the universe. Like, if sci-fi teleportation was possible, how would it square with the multitudes of organisms that inhabit our human bodies? Can we find evidence of emotions in animals like bees, ants, and crayfish? How would an interplanetary civilization function? Does free will exist? Stuff to Blow Your Mind examines neurological quandaries, cosmic mysteries, evolutionary marvels, and the wonders of techno-history. Basically, this show is the altar where we worship the weirdness of reality. If anybody ever told you you ask the weirdest questions, it is time to come join us in the place where you belong, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. New episodes publish every Tuesday and Thursday with bonus episodes on Saturdays. Listen to Stuff to Blow Your Mind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome to It Could Happen Here Pod, a podcast that is today about the fact that 10 years ago it did happen. And when I say it did happen, I mean we occupied an extremely large number of places and we did so in interesting and incredibly bizarre ways. And with with, with me to talk about this is Garrison, as always. I like that you used the Twitter handle for our podcast, not the actual name, but that's fine. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go for it. <laughs> <laughs> but hello, hi, I'm Garrison. With me, I have I have my special guest, Vicky Osterweil, who is an agitator, who is a writer, who has done many, many things, probably most famously uh, writing the book uh, In Defense of Looting um, in 2020 from is Bold Press? Bold Type Press. Bold, Bold Type, type Press, press. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good book. Uh, People got very you. mad. <laughs> People got very angry. Yeah, yes. thank you. It's just, it's really I'm really excited to be here to to talk about the uh, the anniversary of Occupy from which yeah. is basically you know when I when I all got this whole train rolling. So yeah, and the the other the other thing um, that is, that is probably relevant here is that Vicky was one of the first people at Occupy, and and it, correct me if I'm wrong about this. I, I found an oblique reference to this in one of the things I read. You facilitated the first meeting. Yes. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's on the record now. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. During, um, during the, the general New York city general assembly, it was called in August. Um, there was, you know, uh, ad busters hopefully called for a general assembly and, um, 
you know, a bunch of us sort of went down there and there was a uh, tanky party there um, doing a general assembly, which was just them on a, on speakers <laughs> um, doing their regular ranting. Um, it hasn't changed much in 10 years. Um, and, uh, and we, um, yeah, so we, a bunch of us just went and sat down, uh, you know, to the side of it and started an actual general assembly. And by, by, by happenstance, I, I, I facilitated that meeting and it was the first and last Occupy meeting I ever facilitated. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So I I want to roll back a little bit to just before the start of Occupy because yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the more I think about this, the more I've just realized that 2011 was just a profoundly weird time in in a lot of ways that I think people have forgotten. Like the entire American security state is at this point being terrorized by a joint anonymous lolsec hacking campaign called Antisec, the symbol of which is a guy in a guy fox mask wearing a monocle and a top hat. And this was just like normal. Yeah. This, this was the thing that everyone looked at. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's it's the it's it's the, it's the anti-sec top hat full face guy in a monocle. Fun fact about that, just before we, we forget, David Gramer, uh, rest in peace, who was there uh, in the early days organizing, claimed and um that he had he had heard and talked to the some of the like overheard the police talking about the reason they didn't sweep the Occupy encampment the first day when we were pretty weak, frankly, or the first week was because there were a bunch of Guy Fawkes masks and they were scared. <laughs> they were scared they were going to get hacked if they, if they attacked. They were scared we were going to hack them and steal their... Yeah, so so it was a weird time indeed. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the, the, the other thing that's you know, I, I think important about this time period if, if we're looking back at what Occupy was is that... So this is this is three years after the the financial collapse and you know so, so i think this is you know in the run up to 2011 there, there's been a few there's been a few protests there's been there was a big thing in greece in 2008 that was kind of related kind of unrelated but i i think in my sense of you know i was like i don't know i was like 13 i was like i was like an actual baby child but my, my sense of it was kind of just like like there's there was this like sense that everyone's just kind of waiting for something to happen yeah. And it just like hadn't and it just like kept going and kept going and kept going and then you know and, and then and then Tunisia starts. Yeah. And mm-hmm. suddenly there's you know there there there's protests in Tunisia, there's protests in Egypt, there's like people fighting tanks in the street in Bahrain and you know and this this is you know this this becomes known as the Arab Spring and it starts to spread to a lot of places. And Vicky, I want to talk I want to ask you about this because you you were in Spain. When it starts yes. started there, I want to talk about what 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 yeah. was going on there and <laughs> yeah. So I, I wasn't there when it started, um, but but uh, but yes, um, basically, you know, and I, and I want to shout out like there were there were a bunch of like movements like in two thousand eight, right after the crash, there were a bunch of protests like outside Wall Street. They were very small, but they were like sort of they like produced some images, and then there was um, you know in two thousand nine, there's the Oscar Grant Rebellion in Oakland. And you have the Madison occupation earlier in 2011, um, where they, where the the workers, the unions took over the the state house. Oh in yeah, Wisconsin. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone does. It was actually really important yeah. at the time. Um, but yes, yeah, so so you know, so I think I'm glad you brought up Greece because I think actually Greece really that that sort of anarchist rebellion 2008 2009 really kicked off the cycle in a certain way, but also didn't quite. It wasn't quite the first domino, you know, it was sort of more of a like forecast. So yeah, so Arab Spring, uh, you know, is is huge. It's this huge, huge event. And the US media is loving it because obviously like these sort of old 
you know, quote unquote, Marxist dictators are falling. Um, and so, of course, the U.S. is like all about it, um, which, of course, later later on, the return of the tankies will use to um, to confuse uh, everyone on the U.S. left and destroy all solidarity with Syria. Anyway, um, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Um, so then then in uh, then in that summer, um, you get this this wave of early summer, like May and June. In fact, the 15th of May was when the movement started in, in Spain, and then it starts soon again in Greece. And it was similar to Occupy in that there was these people coming together in these sort of encampments in the center of the city. Um, I don't know if people remember um, or, or know this history economically, but Spain and Greece had recently been sort of going through these like big, big booms, economic booms, just for about five or six years that turned out to be real estate bubbles funded by their entry into the EU. And 2008 just smashed that. And they were just like incredibly impoverished. I mean, like Spain was facing something like 50% youth unemployment. Greece was like similar. Spain has recovered more than Greece has in the intervening yeah. years, but it's still bad. Um, so, so yeah, so you had all these, it was, it was, you know, predominantly young folks who were, um, you know, had been pushed out of the economy, who'd been pushed out of their homes, whose families had lost their homes, um, gathering together. And it was all over both countries and it was huge. Um, I happened to just be in Barcelona. I had been on a planned vacation with some friends, um, you know, that we had, we had planned like sort of six months earlier when it all popped off. And I had also just started my writing. Um, I would say career, but that's very generous. Um, I had started technically being paid for writing things and they were like, Oh, write about it. Like, let, like cover it while you're there. And because no one in the U S was talking about what was going on in Spain, when my article popped up, like, and this is like, this is really strange, but it was like the early days of Twitter as well. Um, 2011, like I guess Twitter started in 2009 or something. And so like, so the, 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 one of the accounts from the camp tweets out my article. So I went there the next day. I was like, I wrote that article. And then I was like embedded for a week. And I was there for like kind of the height of the popular power of the movement in Barcelona only for a week. But I was there on the day when there was a two and a half million person march through Barcelona. Um, just like still probably the biggest march I've ever been part of and probably ever will be um, was like that. And so, you know, so that goes on for for a few months in Greece and Barcelona. It sort of hits similar limits that Occupy would eventually hit, which is that like, you know, that that if you can take the space away from people, that's that's yeah. the common ground. And like you can't really have the movement without the encampment. And also all the way in which the, the camps sort of force a kind of internal navel gazing and people like get really obsessed with maintaining the camp rather than the struggle with the city at large. All of those all of those contradictions sort of like came up in, in Spain and Greece as well. But at the time, you know, I, I was there for the height of it. I come back to New York. I'm like, this is going to happen in the U.S. Like it has to um, I think a lot of folks who had been watching felt that way as well. Um, I actually took part in this thing called Bloombergville, which was like oh, 50, you're, you're in yeah, 50 people on a sidewalk. Um, it was my, for Michael Bloomberg, right? Um, 50 people on a sidewalk. 50 people was general. That was like when we were doing really well. Like mostly <laughs> 15 of us. It was like 15 of us on a sidewalk um, in the financial district, like getting yelled at by cops. Um, you know, sleeping on cardboard, you know, Occupy style, but without any attention or, or yep. solidarity. Um and, but because I had been in Barcelona and I still had these comrades in Barcelona, I was like, oh my God, we're doing it in New York. So we had this thing where Bloombergville, which is like 20 people, like got to talk to a general assembly in Barcelona at the height of its power, like <laughs> on a like internet link, like a really early internet link, you know? Um, and, you know, so, 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 so there was all this energy that was happening. And then I think really crucially, the London riots pop off and that doesn't get talked about very much anymore. 
uh, partially because the UK left really um, stabbed yeah, the writers in yeah. the back during that and ha- and have and, and repressed the memory of it largely um, and have suffered ever since, in my opinion, strategically. Um, but, you know, that was for us in the US, that was huge. It was huge watching um, watching those riots unfold. Like, you know, again, this was like early live streaming. So like we were like watching live feeds of the riots, you know, which like was not a thing that you could really do without a TV before. There was just like there was a lot of stuff going on. That felt exciting and and was and really important and, and inevitable that it would come to the U.S. because things were so messed up over here. I think we should talk about what a general assembly actually is because I think a lot of people aren't either going to have like never actually ran into what exactly is going on or have sort of forgotten in the last ten years after they've sort of fallen out of favor. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it was never my favorite either, honestly. But <laughs> it's a uh, it's a meeting style um, designed. Um, it actually does largely actually come from from um, European anarchist traditions, um, from from Spain and Greece. But as as many of us know, um, a lot of those traditions go back further um, and have crossed crossed the water. Uh, General assemblies actually, there's a long history of them in indigenous communities in uh, Turtle Island, for example. So it's an old meeting style um, in which um, the Quakers also the Quakers um, famously also sort of uh, sort of uh, co-opted it from from indigenous folks out here on the East Coast. Um, but um, it's a meeting style in which uh, you know, with the exception of a facilitator, which is occasionally but not always present, um, everyone is able to speak. Um, together there is some there's an agenda sometimes but it's basically a meeting designed where everyone present in the meeting has like an equal voice and it's not really designed generally for um decision making specifically or in with like really specific goals in mind often um although there will be sort of like things that are trying to get settled um but it's 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 designed to allow, you know, a very, very multivocal approach and for everyone to sort of put in their their thoughts and their ideas um, and often is connected, although not necessarily, but is often connected to consensus um, operation where um, things can't get sort of decided on unless everyone sort of agrees. Um, and in Occupy, um, that was the General Assembly was sort of um, was a bit controversial because it was just whoever showed up obviously participates in it. Yeah. So, you know, unlike, unlike, you know, an organizational meeting where you, you know, everyone knows each other and you have to have a, you know, you have to be there with an invite or whatever, um, you know, whatever cranky wingnut um, wanted to show up uh, could. Um, and that had pluses and minuses. It, it was charming sometimes, but it was also very frustrating. Um, and in, in New York where I was, um, it was made almost impossible to function by this thing called the people's mic. Um, oh, yeah. which I think still happens. Sometimes people also say even mic check. Um, and, and then everyone repeats what was said, but that means that it takes four times as long to talk as normal. Hmm. So when you have a wingnut, you know, like advocating for wrong Paul, and then you've got 30 people echoing him every four <laughs> words, it makes, it makes discussion completely impossible. And a micro history of the people's mic. The reason that happened was because in the first week, uh, in Zuccotti park, um, Whenever we got on a megaphone, police would come and arrest whoever was on the megaphone because you weren't allowed to use amplified sound in New York. And one organizer was like, oh, no, no, we can, like, use the people's mic. We can, like, repeat back to each other. And this is when there's still mostly, like, 30 to 40 people in the park at any one time. It's very small. That didn't feel so bad. But then when the movement really got big, the people's mic became completely unwieldy and also was a response to a was a cowardly response to police repression, frankly, um, and was a way of so the people's mic is is in my opinion a reactionary 
form. Anyway, that is so, <laughs> it's been 10 years. I haven't been able to complain about this in like eight years. Thank you so much. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so the General Assembly is just a meeting form um, that often often associated with anarchy, anarchist practice or radical democratic practice um, in which sort of consensus is aimed for by allowing everyone to speak their mind, I would say. Yeah, and so and th- this, this I think gets us back to wh- where we opened this episode, which is Ed Buster's calls an event with literally no plans to like do anything they're just like yeah everyone we're occupying wall street and then yeah and you know as as we talked about the beginning of it you guys basically hijack (laughs) (laughs) well sort of i mean so adbusters adbusters doesn't show up like you said there's i've never met an adbusters person um and it was funny, like we would do jokes about it, but I think it's also thinking about this in preparation for this interview. It's also interesting because Adbusters and their culture jamming is kind of like one of the results of the sort of alter globalization movement of the like late '90s and early 2000s, the summit hopping stuff, um, the anarchy movement of like one generation ahead of of Occupy. Um, so I think it's sort of appropriate that Adbusters sort of like you know was present in this legacy in a certain way, and a lot of those organizers were as well. But yes. I'm sorry. Did I did I just jump in before you finish? No, no, no. It's okay. okay. Um, the the yeah. So 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 a bunch of people. I don't actually know who calls for an August second. You know, general assembly to talk about the call for September seventeenth to occupy Wall Street. Um, and at that at that point, that's when the thing I was describing earlier like happens, where where um, you know we a bunch of folks and and I, I really want to underline this. Most of them were people who had been in Spain or Greece. Um, David Graeber was also there. It was like a lot of old heads. There was like a, there was a comrade from Japan. Um, it was a very international, uh, crew who had like had experience in these movements over the summer, um, came and had this general assembly and sort of ran it that way and broke out. We had, we broke off working groups and then there was meetings sort of once a week and then working group meetings within that, um, and general assemblies from August 2nd till September 17th, at which point, um, you know, occupy the date, the date that Adbusters had called for, um, actually happened. So my, my impression of this, and I, I was I was very small. I had very limited idea of what was going on. I, the, the, the way I remember it in the media is that like the 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 media was weirdly interested in it in a way that I've never seen them. I've never seen them cover another social movement that wasn't like literally burning their offices down. And it was right. like it was like in, in the beginning it was. I mean, you know, obviously the right wing media is losing their minds, but they were kind of kind of supportive of it and and I think I don't know I want to see what you think about this one of the things that that happens in both in both Greece and in Spain is that the 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 product movement of the squares is these electoral movements and these electoral movements just fail like catastrophically like Sarsia takes power like like they they like you know they they have they have they have a like their their finance minister is a left communist. He is like he is the most far left person ever. Like to hold office since like the Spanish anarchists in nineteen thirty like nineteen thirty six, and they implement austerity anyways. Uh, in Spain, you get Podemos, and it's like, well, okay, you, you have you know they have this thing called the electoral war machine. They're they're going to take over the Spanish political system, and they, they just, it collapses. It just doesn't work. They've they've never like they've 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 never they've never taken power. They've never really got anywhere. They 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 successfully evicted a bunch of squats in, in Catalonia, but. <laughs> Yeah, but and and I think this is my impression of it was that I I think the U.S. media thought that they could do, they could do this to occupy, hmm. and and I I think they kind of it's weird because looking so you know like I I I come in in like to to this kind of stuff around 2016 2017 and I, and I think it it's like it weirdly worked but it worked because they were able to recruit the anti occupy people 
Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. And so they, 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 they did finally get their like cadre of like pseudo left organizers so they could use to build Democratic Party. It's just it was like Jacobin and then all, like, the whole the whole sort of anti-Occupy group. Yeah. So those folks were actually um, active during Occupy um, critiquing the, the people who now most loudly um, claim the legacy of Occupy. Um, you know, as you said, Jacobin, a lot of those sort of social Democrat groups um, at the time. Um, and those of us who were there remember they hated Occupy. They would show up, but they like would critique it constantly. They would write all these articles about how it was terrible, how there were no demands. It was too disorganized. And then I think, you know, when Black Revolt got put on the table. They were like, bring back Occupy. We like that better. Um, (laughs) But, um, but I think um, to be as harsh as possible, but um, I think like, um, you know, yes, there was, there was a lot of Uh media coverage. It didn't feel super friendly at the time. Um, There was a lot of, there was a lot of media coverage. Like the media was very curious. It was very interested, but a lot of that coverage was like, why do they have no demands? Like, Mm -hmm. why are they so disorganized? Why are they so smelly? Whatever. Like there was a lot of like, there was a lot of slander in the press, but also a lot of attention. Um, which, you know, it turned, turned out was as good as you could get, but at the time didn't, didn't feel very good. Um, yeah. particularly I think. Yeah. Uh, but yes, those, those forces, those forces were already present, um, in, you know, in, in, uh, Occupy itself, um, you know, sort of denouncing it, um, for its disorganization, um, and then eventually claiming that it was the reason that Bernie Sanders happened, um, <laughs> which isn't totally wrong. Also, yeah. like, I want to be really clear. Like I think, and I think we'll, we'll get into this more, but I think like, the thing that about the thing that was important about Occupy and the thing that the people who, in my opinion, like my comrades during Occupy or people I meet who were like doing Occupy stuff, but like I, who I didn't know, but like now we, I, I you know, I, I roll with them. Most of us have the, have the, you know, the analysis, but like it was really important that we were doing politics in the street. It was really important that we were back together. that We were talking politics. And then there were really, really intense extreme limits to what Occupy could have done. Um, and I think Oakland really pushed those, um, yeah. and, and, you know, and got to those, but, um, and I think the folks who were like, no, no, Occupy was good at the time were like, Occupy is terrible. Um, and I think that's worth notice, noting and thinking about. So I, I think, yeah, before we sort of go into talk a bit about what happened in Oakland and talk about some of their stuff. So on, on a day-to-day basis, like what is Occupy actually doing? Because I think that's also been sort of lost in this whole like, cause everyone remembers like the slogans and everyone remembers the fact that there was a thing, but you know, like the, the, there's, there's a bunch of working groups and they're doing things. So, like, what, what was that like, like day to day and then on a sort of broader level? Yeah. So, so, um, so first of all, again, I was only in New York. I spent some time at Occupy Boston as well. Um, but like, I don't have a sense of what other places were like. So I, I really can't, I mean, other than having heard from people. So I want to be very clear that I'm like mostly addressing that. Um, I think the thing that was going on was that Zuccotti Park, like the park was like Total chaos. Um, part of that was because there was a drum circle that basically was going 24 <laughs> hours a day um, there, which meant that whenever you were down there, and it was like a canyon, Zuccotti Park is surrounded by skyscrapers. So it was just this incredible cacophony all the time, um, which I think was cool. It really ruined a lot of finance bros, like, like, you know, like, <laughs> o- uh, like orally, you know, um, with an A there. Um, but I think like, but it also was pretty intense and unpleasant. Sometimes you were like, please stop. Oh my God. Like that's at one point, a general assembly, I think decided that drums were like only acceptable during certain hours, like near the end of the movement, like the drum, the drum circle got reproached when in fact they were like actually the biggest agents of chaos in Zuccotti, Park, <laughs> which is another important lesson. Um, but um, yeah, I think so. So, you know, also because I had been in Bloombergville, because I'd been in Barcelona, I didn't, invest myself very heavily in, in camp management stuff. 
So I mostly was doing um, work. One of the things that I think gets forgotten about is that there were snake marches basically three or four a day, every day. After, after the first week when we were really small, when it got big, there were just constant, constant marches through the city, just like always going off. Like you would run in, you'd be on one march, you'd run into another march, like on a Saturday or Sunday when like people were really like out there. Like it was, it was really like, there was a lot of mayhem. There'd be big planned marches that would then be bigger. Um, so there was like a lot of like um, what people now would call direct action, what I, I would call largely like sort of symbolic practice for direct action mostly. Um, I don't mind, I, I like marches. I certainly got my miles in then. Like I don't feel <laughs> like I need to do that again, but um, but you know, so then at, at the camp, people were just living there. There were a lot of like, <clears throat> a lot of punks, a lot of like, you know, a lot of homeless folks, obviously. And some, and some encampments had more, had a higher concentration of unhoused people. Some con- in New York, because of all the media spectacle and all the money that came in, mm. we had a lot of nonprofit grifters by the end, mm. um, in the encampment. Yeah. Uh, but there was also like a library, um, a free library with all these books that like would be donated. Um, there was a lot of like, you know, political agitation, There'd be people standing around the the um, the you know the corners of the park, you know, with with signs and yelling at people. And it's also important to remember that like Zuccotti Park in New York is tiny. It's tiny. We had originally wanted to do it on this big plaza, like Citibank Plaza, um, and the cops had heard about that and fenced it off. So on the seventeenth, we just like we just um, uh, what's the word? We 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 did a. Oh my god! Football audible. metaphors. Called an this is why you shouldn't do this. We called an audible. Thank yeah, you. There we go. <laughs> so we so Zuccotti is this tiny little park. It's incredibly dense, and it's surrounded by you know, like I said, by skyscrapers. It's in this really weird part of the city that no one would ever spend any time in if they didn't have to otherwise. Um, so that sort of so there's all this stuff going on, and then there are all these there are general assemblies twice a day, um, which, as I said, in New York were per- particularly unhelpful. Um, but I think anarchists in a lot of cities who I've talked to, like I had a comrade down in D.C., one in Denver, they sort of said that the, the General Assemblies either quickly like got shifted or got or became irrelevant. Um, I think the General Assemblies were not were not in the end were, were symbolically important, but not but not really uh, a driving force um, of my experience. Um, and then there would be there would be like I said, there'd be a lot of organizing outside of the park. There'd be a lot of like meetings and, you know, talks and um, direct actions and marches um, and then there would be, you know, uh, I guess that's kind of the extent of it, right. Is that there was like a lot of direct action that, but there was always this park where you could go and like run into people and like hook up with people, meet people and like do a weird thing. And I think that was really like the heart of the movement was the fact that there was this place you could go meet someone and like link into something weird and maybe cool and maybe not, it doesn't matter. But like, there was always something to do kind of, and it was constant. It was like this sort of 24 hour Right, like experience, and I think that was really what um, what separated it from from other from other movement waves that we've had we've had since, um, and was 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 probably I think its greatest strength in many ways. Yeah, I think that that was that was the the impression that I got, and part of this also was when I when I was in college, like every once in a while you just get assigned like some person writing about Occupy, and it was like most of them were just extremely cranky about the whole thing but sure you know one one of the things i think was interesting about it is that everyone seemed to agree at least to some extent that part of what was going on was that it, it's 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 this way to do i don't know if identity formation is quite the right word for it but it's it's this way to sort of like rebuild social connections and rebuild like social sort of bonds in a way that just had 
you know, as, as public space becomes just the cops and you right. know, like, I, I, like there's, there's a table in Chinatown that I like call the cop table that I'm really mad about that. Like, like this is in Chicago Chinatown. I would like go there, start in front of the library. And there's a sign sign on the table that says, if you loiter at this table, you will be arrested. It's like, this is a picnic table. Like the cops are you, this table is threatening that it is going to arrest you if you use it for what's using, you know, for what you're supposed to use tables for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think like it was, you know, there was a lot of um, at the time, a lot of people were talking about um, uh, embarrassingly about Hart and Negri's sort of like multitude <laughs> stuff. Oh, um, a really, a really a, a much better book that was important was also um, David Graeber's Debt. Yeah. Um, but I think like. You know, and there was like a lot of like people saying things about like the agora, you know, um, democracy, the sort of political, the political encounter, space of encounter. Um, and that stuff wasn't all wrong. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of being a little sarcastic with a lot of it. But like, <laughs> but I think like like there there was a lot of, you know, um, part of how we sh- I think we should understand um, the over discussed under under, you know, like over analyzed word neoliberalism that like has largely become meaningless. One of the things I should I think I think is valuable for understanding is a process by which capitalism responded to the long 60s by disorganizing its production process mm-hmm. such that the long 60s could never happen again, right? So like like the the for the, the the control the like the concentration of workers within within production in such a way that they could be agitated by students and then like sort of radically unionize wildcat and sort of like almost overthrow a government, right? Like the neoliberalism is like, you know, it smashes the unions, yes, but it also it also like distributes out the act of production, right? So that so that that's not so easily done. And I think one of the real problems of, you know, that was facing social movement, um, you know, in the, in the period, you know, the, the long period, like, you know, you had stuff like in the U.S. again, that's, this is where I know the best, but like, you know, you have the L.A. uprising, which is huge. Um, and you have, you know, the, the, glo- the summit hopping movement and anti-globalization, which, you know, w- could attack a target. But there wasn't really a sense of like how it felt hard to do a local struggle um, beyond like literally like a, a revolutionary riot like LA, which, you know, you can't really precipitate. Um, yep. I mean, you can't really precipitate a movement either, obviously, but I think like, but like, but like a, a, a political, a political movement, a form of political organizing that didn't require something on the level of George Floyd, which is what the LA rebellion was. Right. Um, but that also didn't require like uh, an action from capital that you were like striking against. Right. Like the, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, the summits or whatever. Um, the, and that, that, Again, and like the, all of these eras are very important. This is not to like, you know, obviously like this is with, with respect for those movements. Um, but yeah, it, we felt, I think it felt like we were in a political wilderness. And I think that that like um, Occupy really, and the movement of the squares globally, I think, um, really like demonstrated that it was possible to practice a kind of street politics, even without, um, you know, a shop floor where you mm. could organize, even without, um, you know, a a, 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 a capital P party uh, to organize within. Um, and I think that was really important. I think it also scared a lot of people who, and, and continues to, who are committed to those politics. Yep. Um, and um, to the 20th century workers movement, uh, or the 19th and 20th century labor movement, which they somehow fantasize will come back um, if they just wish hard enough and write enough <laughs> books or whatever. Um, and I think like... Um, so I think that was powerful. I also think like, like, yeah, sorry, we can move on to legacy later, but yes, I think that was like, I think that was very much like an important thing was, was just like, and you know, um, I graduated college in 2009. 
Um, so I was like part of that millennial generation that like, you know, had gone into incredibly deep debt. Yeah. Like we'd have a college degree and then like the, the bottom fell out of the economy. There were no jobs. Um, and like, I think there were a lot of, you know, like people who like had anticipated a middle-class life, um, of some kind. Uh, not that I really had at that point, but whatever, like, but, but a lot of people like in my economic cohort, like had, um, <clears throat> uh, suddenly facing, pe- you know, proletarianization. Right. And I think, that was one of the strengths of the movement. I think that was that you know, like I mentioned, the statistics in great in Spain and Greece. Like I think that was a global aspect of this kind of movement. Um, uh, um, Arab Spring too. Like there was there was a lot of like that was really a response to the economic crisis. Obviously, those folks were already more proletarian than the people who yeah. the young people in in the squares movements. Um, but they they innovated. They 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 created the tactics in in Arab Spring, right? Um, Tahrir Square, most famously in Cairo, um, and. Um, I think like those creating a meeting place where, um, you didn't require a pre-constructed like political community, um, in order to engage was a strength and a weakness. Um, and I think it, it also, you know, as a result of the dynamics of the general assembly, the dynamics of the sort of voluntarist nature of that, what I'm describing, um, it led to a lot of people who were already confident, who were already feeling good, being able to like take more power, right? Like, um, uh, and I think it also was a very white movement, um, certainly in New York, but, but I think, I think across the country, um, it was largely, it was largely, you know, it was, it was, uh, majority white in a way that, you know, by higher percentages than any movement that we've really been part of since, um, was, um, and that was obviously a limit, um, for, for reasons that will be obvious to everyone, including the idea that like a lot of people pushed that, like the police are part of the 99%, yeah. right? Um, <sighs> okay, so let, let, let's talk about the police because you know yes, talk about the illegalism. Like that's you know that's that's the one of the other extremely important aspects of this is this immense militarization. I mean, okay, so I, I think that the militarization of the police as a phrase I think is somewhat misleading in that like it, it, the cops have always like shot people. Yeah, but you know I, I, the. There's yeah, there's 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 still like there's an intense sort of ramp up of of the prison sector. There's you you have this intense boom in the size of prisons. You have uh mm-hmm. yeah, you you have, you have increasing parts of the economy that are just I mean, you have entire towns that used to be sort of manufacturing sectors that used to be sort of in, in, involved in sort of industrial production that are just like it the the economy is now just there's a prison there. And right. and, I, and I think this is also looking back one of the things that looked like Occupy kind of ran, ran up into because you know, occupies this attempt to like, you know, form a democratic space, and it, it it relies crucially on this this thing that is nominally in the constitution but doesn't exist, which is the like the the, the right to freedom of speech and the right to freedom of assembly, and freedom yeah. of assembly like that is that is like that is bullshit. It does not exist. If like if if you actually believe that this exists, like try getting like seventy people into a space and see how like just like I don't know like into a street or just just like into into yeah. like have a bunch of people mm-hmm. in a park. And just like see yeah. how fast a cop show up because you know it turns out like yeah yeah first like, like, time like, I yeah that I was I was at any kind of protest cops immediately wanted to take anything I was holding you're not <laughs> yeah. you're not, al- yeah. you're not allowed to it's yeah. like the first thing if 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 you, if, if you have anything in your hands that's mm-hmm. that that is mm-hmm. a that is a problem yeah it's like like the first amendment is just it's super completely superseded by traffic laws like laws about like sidewalk maintenance like not it's it's all fake like none of it <laughs> yeah like you're, you're not you're not allowed to and this is this i think is is partially why this is kind of a talk but this is partially i think why 
there's so much focus on the right about the first amendment because they they want to they want to draw attention away from the fact that like the actual thing that's fake about it is that you can't gather people and meet anywhere and they want to draw it into these like inane like this professor like said the n-word a bunch of times in class yes. and uh, isn't yeah. it bad that people right. are mad at them but but, but i think also yeah. go, go, go t- tie this sort of back to occupy you know okay so so occupy functions right in in insofar as there is a a physical location where people can go and physically interact with each other and that's a problem because at at some point the police are just like no and yeah. they start the evidence keeps pouring in at this point the facts are undeniable it's an open and shut case monopoly go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
clearing the encampments. And I think this is this is the other thing with Occupy is that outside of like parts of Oakland and that that's a whole other thing that yeah, but, but it it's it's incredible like studiously nonviolent in a way that like nothing I've ever seen before or since is yeah. So, so, so there's a lot there. I'm going to, I want to talk about it cause that's, there's a lot. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think the militarization of the police thesis, um, is, is incomplete if you don't also talk about the policification of the military. Right. Mm-hmm. So like part of what happens with, with the great expansion of the, um, of the, uh, carceral state, part of that is also a response to the Vietnam war, yep. um, and, and mass resistance within, you know, the troops, there are like in the Viet in the in like the last two years when ground troops are there in, in Vietnam, there's like fourteen hundred fragging incidents where where um you know where where privates and, and recruits killed their officers. The US Army during the during Vietnam was on the brink of a of collapse in the way that like like the Russian army was looking in 1917. Yeah, right? it was so, like 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 the, the numbers I think I think so at one point there was like 40% of the army by the end of Vietnam was either on strike or just like not following orders. Yeah, no, it was it was complete. There was to- the reason that that uh, Nixon pursues Vietnamization, which is when they just start doing air campaigns, bombing and napalm, is because they couldn't rely on ground troops anymore. They just they were useless. They were all high. Um, you know, the talk about you know, there's a lot of talk about like heroin, but like that was actually kind of a form of resistance within the lines in a complicated way. Whatever. Okay, that's all very. So the military realizes that it can't function as a mass military in the model that uh, nation states have done since the Napoleonic Wars, right? Which is like the, the, the mass, you know, the mass recruitment of the citizen soldier. Um, that's sort of how war is fought between, you know, 1810 and, and 1970. And then it becomes clear that that's not going to work anymore uh, because the, because the aims of the countries and the power of nationalism have become too abstracted. Fascism has done too much damage to that image. There's just like, there's, it doesn't really work anymore. So the military turns into a sort of, what it always was also, which is like a colonial mm-hmm. policing force. And so the police and the military drift towards one another in form and function. Okay. So in Occupy, um, one of the micro histories that I think gets forgotten is that like, I mean, because, because it took a week and like, who remembers this week except for like weirdos like me who were there, um, is that like, there was no one at Zuccotti in the first, first week. And one of the big things that happened was these, 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 you know, young white girls got caught in a police net and pepper sprayed. And there was this video that went around of them getting pepper sprayed and screaming. Mm-hmm. This particular this, this woman on her knees, you know, screaming with with tears and pepper spray yeah. going down her face. And that really outraged people because, you know, they were, you know, it was police repression and police violence. So in terms of the question of nonviolence, yes, um, there was a lot of nonviolence. It was a constant fight that mm-hmm. took, honestly, took until the George Floyd uprising for the right yeah. for our side to win, frankly. But <laughs> but but um but during Occupy. There was, you know, there was a lot of nonviolence nonsense. Um, and I think like, but, but another thing that happened though, was that like, you know, like I said, people were marching every day. So even in New York, where I think the political height was kind of achieved October 1st, when we took the Brooklyn bridge, um, I think, I think New York never really like had a big moment again. Like it was largely sort of like smaller things after that, but, um, but like, and there was a mass arrest on the Brooklyn Bridge. So we marched over the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge got shut down. They arrested 700 of us. Um, it was the first big infrastructure shutdown that had happened in the U.S. since the L.A. riots. It was it was a big deal at the time. Now can, it happens can I, all can the I, time. Can I put a note out, though, specifically for the Brooklyn Bridge? If, if you're because people I, I've seen every every single time there's one of these movements, people try to take the Brooklyn Bridge and they all get arrested. And it's like, can can you all like, please, I am begging you, if you're going to try to take a bridge, make sure you have a way out. 
Like, yeah, you, you have to hold one of the that's, sides. Otherwise, that's all the of you are going to get arrested. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you got to yeah. have a way out. A bridge is designed to not have a way out. That's yeah. how bridges work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> please, please, please don't all get arrested. It's, it's in fact, bad and... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, no, no, so, I have seen a few people successfully take bridges a few times, but that's because there was like three cop cars and like fifteen thousand people. Yeah, um, exactly. If you have like a block with two hundred kids, you're not going to be able to hold the bridge. Yeah. From Cavalry Audio comes the new true crime podcast. The Shadow Girls. I always wanted to know what it felt like to kill somebody. And he started laughing. Prosecutors described him as a serial killer savant. Picking up these girls, getting them in a position of vulnerability. When he got a hold of their neck, that was it. I'm Carolyn Osorio, a journalist and lifelong resident of the Pacific Northwest. I grew up near the banks of the Green River and in the shadow of the killer that bears its name. How many times did you bring the camera to One the river? time. Just one time. one time. He started fantasizing about having sex with his mother. Then he fantasized about killing her. But this podcast isn't only about tracking down the killer. It's about the victims. We stayed in the woods. He always liked to go to the woods. She was just, to all of us, kind of strange. You know how he feels about prostitutes? Listen to The Shadow Girls on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real-life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. After 30 years, it's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit. On the podcast 9021OMG, join Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind-the-scenes stories that actually happened. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Get all the juicy details of every episode that you've been wondering about for decades as 90210 90210 super fan and radio host Sissini sits in with Jenny and Tori to reminisce, reflect, and relive each moment from Brandon and Kelly's first kiss to shouting, Donna Martin graduates. You have an amazing memory. You remember everything about the entire 10 years that we filmed that show. And you remember absolutely nothing of the 10 years that we filmed that show. <laughs> Listen to 9021 OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about a crumbling empire and planting seeds in the spaces between. Here's part two of our interview with Vicky Osterweil about the legacy of Occupy Wall Street. But, but you know, like you were saying, you know, like that, that, you know, don't get arrested, it's bad. So I think when Occupy really started, you know, we were mostly people who had been educated by the co-optation of the civil rights movement, which is that it was all nonviolent and that the whole thing was getting arrested and Martin Luther King was like the only voice that made any sense and that was what was effective, blah, 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 blah. Um, we had all learned that in school, right? We had all been trained that like nonviolence was like the only thing that made sense and that worked. Um, and I think like those of us who learned about it at all in school, which is certainly not everyone, um, yeah. but like I think like like 
the the experience of Occupy of like every day, just getting beat up by the cops every day, like getting attacked, getting arrested. Some people got really some people got really nihilistically nonviolent. Like some people like really dug in and they're like, yeah, like, like like we're like, no, like there is nothing we can do except be beaten. And it turned into this like real masochistic game. Yeah. But like, that happens. You know, yeah. All, all sure the, that, that still happens all the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That, that's one, that's one common response. But another thing that happened was that people started breaking through that, that, that shit. People, mm-hmm. people started on the ground. Like I remember a March, you know, early on, you know, the police would attack and everyone would sort of like de- try to deescalate and people would try to like, you know, like, like talk to the cops or whatever. And like by November, when right before the camps got cleared, I remember being on a March where we stole all of their orange netting <laughs> that they were using. And we were just holding it over our head as we marched and like trapping cops in it. So like even in New York where things never got that intense, um, like in some ways in terms of direct action, like that lesson on the ground, like you have to be, you have to be very ideologically committed to get hit with a baton three times and still think the police are on your side. You know, yeah. you have to like, yeah. re- you have to really be drinking the Kool-Aid and some people are like, some people really do want to believe that. But I think, um, I think that was one. So during Occupy, like those of us who hated the police were pretty lonely, um, <laughs> even though the police were beating us up. But by yeah. the end of Occupy, the seeds had really been sown for a lot of generational understanding of the police that didn't necessarily immediately sow fruit. Like it wasn't immediately obvious, but I think like, I think like folks who stayed in struggle from there grew more and more anti-police Yeah, that was um, in, that... in general. That was well, okay. So my my experience was less with Occupy and more with like the 2013 stuff in Turkey. But it's like mm-hmm. that that was like because I I was brought up in that like the sort of like faux Gandhian like yeah MLK civil disobedience, and then it was like like I watched Turkey happen, and it was like, hey, here's my friend just like getting his ribs broken by a cop, and then like there's Rabah, and you know, and Rabah is sort of where where the Egyptian movement dies, and at Rabah they just you know they bring out the machine guns and they just shoot everyone. Yeah, and at a certain point, like you know, this, this is the limit of nonviolence, right? Is that what happens if they just shoot you? And and Gandhi, you know, if if you ever want to like go down the the Gandhi rabbit hole, like Gandhi like writes this letter to like like the Jews of Germany, where he's telling them to like throw themselves on the blades of the Nazis, and it's like it's it, it this is this is like yeah this is, it sucks this is, this um, is ridiculous like th- th- just this is just like you it's being complacent f- for abuse um mm. innuendo studios has a really good video on why nonviolence helps the state um and how basically activists that try to force other you know demonstrators to adhere strictly to nonviolence yep. that's basically that's that's them in that's them basically saying that if like that—that's them endorsing the police beating somebody up. Like, like that, like that's—it's—it's it's not actually tied to any kind of movement, and it doesn't actually help. Like, I, I, and we could actually see this last year with like the first few weeks of like you know abuse from the state actually making headlines and actually changing changing people. But after a while, it just didn't matter. Like, yeah. a, a a cop could pin someone down and pummel their face in like August, and like who gives a shit? Nobody. Like, it, it doesn't—it doesn't matter. You know. Like that's that's why I I I I found it funny when he talked about like, you know, people getting mad because cops were like macing people when they surrounded yeah. them, and I'm like, if that happened, no one no one would give a shit. Like, yeah, well, like, I, I think not not, not at all anymore. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I think uh, I think part of it is is the first time that you see it 
it's like what on earth yeah like and this 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 i think has been one of the things that's been the core of the 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 whole sort of 2019 like late 2018 2019 to like 2021 sort of cycle revolutions is that like if if you're just like a dude in a grocery store and some guy runs in is like running away from the cops and then like 15 riot cops in and just start beating the shit out of them which is the thing that happens like a lot like if you just see that right there's no way you can actually like like if you ordinary person just witness the cops running up and just beating the shit out of someone like there's no way you can't not be sort of radicalized against the police by it. But like, yeah, but there's, there's a certain point where you hit it. The desensitization like, happens yeah. more quickly than what it should. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, I, we stop caring. I agree. I, th- I agree with both of you that like, that like both it is shocking and radicalizing and we get desensitized because there is so much spectacular pressure yeah. to n- naturalize the police and nonviolence ideology is part of that is part of naturalizing police violence, right? Like there's nothing you can do about police violence. Um, so all you can do is control yourself and therefore you should, you know, you should be better or whatever. Yeah. Gandhi had this whole fantasy about, um, the perfect army would march unarmed into machine gun fire. Yeah. Um, and would just be mowed down. It's, it's, he's a fascist, frankly. Um, and, yeah. and, and, yeah, and you, uh, you you only need to look at his opinions about uh, black Africans when he was when he yep. was in South Africa to see that. Or even, even if you even if you just read like like even if you just read like self reliance, it's like this is you know. Yeah. There's one other thing I I want to talk about with with the the peace police though, which is that like they're also like in in terms of like fighting like inflicting violence on other protesters, like they are the most violent like. Of 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 the factions you see in a protest that does happen very well. Yeah. Like, maybe, maybe not the most. They're, but like, they're, they're, like, they're, like that it, it, does yeah, happen. Yeah, like like they they beat people up. <laughs> like I mean, yeah, I was just gonna say like it ties into like protest security and when protest security is usually working with these more like peace police type organizers and then they use protest security to literally beat up people who are doing more radical action against the state. Um, that happens all the time. Yes. Oh yeah. Protest security. When I see protest security or marshals, um, I know exactly that, that the, that we're in a bad, we're in a bad March. Yeah. Um, the only time I've ever been physically assaulted by another protester was during Occupy actually, um, during after the night after we've been evicted, um, which is like November 15th, I think. Um, and if people don't remember Obama and the FBI coordinated this nationally, all the Occupy encampments got swept within a week yep. of each other. Um, on that march, um, we're marching around. We've been marching around all night, um, and I'm just dragging a trash can into the street because we're being followed by police cars. And I'm literally attempting to like do some education at the same time. I'm like pulling the trash can into the street, and I'm yelling, you know, I am doing this because I want to protect us from police violence. Like, if this is in the street, then the cop cars can't catch us as much. That's why we build barricades. I'm like literally trying to like yell this because like you know because. It, Pulling a trash can in the streets is incredibly ineffective, ultimately. So it was like literally, it was literally just like for education purposes at that point, basically. Anyway, especially since a lot of people would like pull them back out of the street, whatever. This guy runs up on me and grabs me by the collar and lifts me up and like threatens me with his fucking fist. And he says, "If my mom can't get to work tomorrow because of you, like I'll beat the shit out of you." And we're like, we're marching in Manhattan at like one a.m. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And like, he would have he would have hurt me like pretty bad if a friend of mine hadn't like luckily had my back and like deescalated a bit. That's the only time I've ever been like physically like brought up like into a fight um, with by by another protester uh, was was a guy insisting that me dragging a trash can into the street was beyond the pale. And, and uh, I think, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to just talk a bit more about like how 
systematic the violence was like because so okay so originally i was going to try to get someone from occupy oakland to come talk about this and i talked to a lot of people and the biggest thing that i got was that no one would talk about it on the record because they they got because oakland had oakland had a blacklist and if, if you were in occupy and like anyone else found out about it like people like people couldn't people spent half a decade just not being able to find jobs because they they just like, blacklisted everyone and like to this day yeah. Like the thing I was told was like, yeah, I I'm not, I I won't talk about this because you know, mm-hmm. like if if I talk about this, like I will be fired. All of my family, everyone around me will be fired. And there's like I think like this is the other thing. But when we talk about sort of the collapse of Occupy, the the extent to which after Obama and the FBI ordered the camps closed, the the policy is that the cops are going to torture anyone who attempts to like gather in a place. Yep. For for two years, you couldn't have a meeting outside without the police attacking, basically. In yeah. Um, and um, and yeah, I mean, it was it was you know I think like a lot of um the people who now claim the that Occupy is the reason that they do politics or whatever for Bernie Sanders or whatever. Um, at the time, they were saying that the reason it collapsed is because there was no um organization, there was no structure, there was no political party, there was no you know whatever, there was no demands, and like it's true that it was poorly organized. Like there's no (laughs) doubt. Um, but like we got beat out of the streets, like we got beat out of the streets and like people tried for six months really intensely. And for another six months after that, less intensely to restart that energy. Um, there was all this works towards like a general strike on May day, um, 2012, which ended up not really working, which is actually exactly the kind of demand filled one day of action kind of politics that they were demanding. It actually really failed. Yeah. Um, which I think is telling, but, but in the meantime, like, you know, like occupy, like Zuccotti got cleared, but for a while there was the thing, no one remembers this, I don't think, but there was a thing up in, um, uh, union square. Um, there was an occupation for three weeks. There was like all the union square freaks, um, and like a bunch of occupiers. Um, and yeah, the cops just like, it was just like batons out on site for a few years in New York. Um, and I know it was like that everywhere else um, or most everywhere else. And that, that came down from on high that like the yeah. police were just like, Oh, what was dangerous about this was people gathering in public. Yep. So we really need to like, we really need to like enforce the second amendment being meaningless. Now we really need to stop meetings from happening in public. Um, and that violence was super intense and super real. And a lot of people, got beaten out of the movement, you know, and a lot of people got really demoralized and left. And, and I understand why um, it was scary yeah. and awful. And there was a lot of repression and um, you know, and it, and it, and it has continued to sort of that, that kind of repression has continued to escalate. Um, but what has successfully happened in our movements, I think to our, to our credit is that we haven't actually formed the kinds of um, hierarchical organizations that allow for more effective police repression. All the police have right now against us for the most part is batons in the street. Um, they have a lot more trouble infiltrating, um, a lot more trouble, which doesn't mean they aren't trying like crazy, but they have a lot more trouble um, um, taking down the movements in the in a sort of pro way, right? Um, the, the, the modes of repression have changed a bit. Um, but that's also because we don't have, it's a combination of the fact that we don't have those forms of organization, but we also don't have those forms of organization because they don't emerge spontaneously mm-hmm. from our living conditions like they used to. Um, so I think it's, it's you can't just give credit to any one thing. There's a lot of different factors at play. I think. I, I will say one one of the other things that that I've noticed, and I think I think I'm pretty sure this has happened. I've read, I've talk, you talk to people who are talking about this with Occupy. Is that like the first thing if you have a group of people who are just there, the first thing the cops try to do is appoint a leader. 
so that they have one person mm-hmm. they can negotiate with. And this, this, and this lets them sort of this, this sort of like access point to which they sort of break like the demands of the crowd is that they they find one person they appoint in the leader and they get that person to sort of like be the liaison. My favorite Occupy joke. I got to give respect to Occupy Denver. This was the best joke that ever happened in Occupy. They announced at the beginning of one week on Friday we are going to announce our leader. Occupy Denver has chosen a leader, and the whole <laughs> movement got so upset. Everyone was so angry. I was like, "What the fuck?" And then like they had this like big press conference, and their leader was a golden retriever. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like it was a, as a basic protocol. Kudos to Occupy Denver, whoever organized that prank. I love you. I guess yeah. So speaking speaking of kudos to a place, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the giant like port occupation strike thing in Oakland. Yes, because I mean that that wasn't the first time people had done it. Like I know I know during the anti war movement, even even till like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, there's a bunch of people trying to occupy ports, but. Oh, in in Oakland, they like did it. They were, they, they put like forty thousand people, like in this in in the port of Oakland, and they shut it down. Yeah, and and I think that was like that was one of the thing one of the stories kind of been lost from this because, mm-hmm. like you know, like that was the point. Like so, like I know people in Oakland who like they got like drugged repeatedly, drugged by police informants because. Particularly Oakland, because also Oakland's also way the Occupy Oakland movement is way way less white than any of the other movements, mm-hmm. and they get like the, the the kind of police oppression they get is like just like yeah you know again like people people being repeatedly drugged by informants like cops shooting people in the face like the the you know you have you have the blacklist you have all this stuff and and I think. You know, part of it is battles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I think part of it is because part of it's because it's a bunch of non-white people, and that's you know that's just what happens. And but I think another part of it was also that there was this fear about. Yeah, so so the reason the port strike is able to happen is because there's sort of there's a complicated game here where the Occupy people like sort of got involved in in like longshoremen union politics. But that sort of like fusion of of you have all the people in the street and then they start shutting down ports and that like like the, the cops like lose their minds over that like that that mm-hmm. I think was like extremely scary to them mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I would you know I, I would defer to anyone from Oakland who was who was there during that. You know, I have comrades there. I've talked to you. I've read about it since. But you know, I think I think part of the heightened police repression and the heightened power of the Oakland occupied Oakland folks was the Oscar Grant rebellion. Like I mentioned yep. in 2009, which had happened, which had, you know, it had been a few hundred people, but it had been really rowdy. There'd been like looting and smashing. Um, maybe, maybe more than a few hundred, maybe near a thousand people on the big, on the first night. Um, and you also obviously have the legacy of the black Panthers in Oakland. So, you know, the black Panther party, you know, forms in Oakland, it lasts in Oakland a decade and a half longer than it does anywhere else in the country. Um, so there's a lot of like, and you also have the really, really intense gentrification of the Bay that's happening. Yeah. So there's an incredible political and economic pressure in the Bay combined with this history of radicalism that really, you know, in, in, um, but yeah, I think also the other thing that's really interesting, I think what you said, like you, you put your, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Like it was largely like, it was terrifying that it was the most effective direct action in the Occupy movement, I think was that port shut down. I think without a doubt, like the biggest mass direct action that, that Occupy achieved, um, what was that November twelfth? Was that was that was the date of that? I, I don't think? remember. But two thousand eleven, near the yeah, end of the yeah. near the end of the cycle, um, and I think like the other thing about um, 
about that though is that that was very similar to the alter globalization movement, right? Mm-hmm. Where the unions had sort of teamed up with, you know, like in Seattle, there's a lot of trade unions on the ground next to all the black blocks, right? Um, and I think like that that image, um, I think really it's really interesting. It really terrified the police, and it really it could be it could have been a vector for a certain kind of like labor first politics that could have emerged. But instead, like the labor first people have turned out to be all electoralists. Yeah. Um, and it seems that, that's sort of a weird blip that hasn't really returned. Um, yeah. And it's I interesting think, too, cause like, cause now like, you know, like the, like the, 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 the AFL CIO just like, you know, AFL CIO is like, no cop unions. Great. And it's like, there's this, there's this sort of like split yeah. between the street movements and organized labor because they're, off doing like electoral stuff and like cop shit, which is this sort of yeah, and 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 yeah. and have been now for for seven decades. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, really, like <laughs> like the 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 buying off of the unions and the New Deal. Yeah. Um, you know, with some brief, you know, with brief windows of like wildcat action in the seventies and the nineties. Um, the buying off of the unions has has never really gone away. Industrial unionism in the U.S. has has long been, and in and in Europe, everywhere where everywhere where those developed in the early twentieth century, that labor movement, um, they've really been successfully bought off, and I don't think. There is, uh, I don't think that those unions are like a big easy route to power any more than. Yeah, I don't, I don't like. Yeah, but, I don't think they're gonna overthrow the government. I mean, I, I will say, yeah, this is this is my my also my the, the thing that I plug every time is that the AFL CIO overthrew Allende. Like, yep. yeah, like like they they their their people on the ground were like directing. Like, like we're, we're, we're directing a bunch of the anti Allende stuff and it's like, and it was the, and it was the union bureaucracies like more recently in 2001 who, um, or in the wake of, of September 11th, who transformed the anti-globalization rhetoric into buy American, right? yeah. which, which it turned out was often buying prison made materials. Yeah. Um, but like that was, that was the union, the union sort of, um, defanged the defanged alter globalization into buy yeah. American. Yeah. And there's, there's, I think like, there's a whole nother story there about how that, like how anti-globalization turned from like you know the zapatistas to like trump yeah which is incredibly depressing and yeah go, goes goes through this line of sort of like the replacement of internationalism with nationalism and that kind of like by local stuff and the fact that like these people sort of just decided that you know partially after seattle partially after 9-11 they're just like we're not doing direct action again and in Oakland's like Oakland's like Occupy like, Oakland's like that that's like that's like the one big exception to that was that moment, and then it just kind of just has never happened again. And that's partially because that that union, the ILW is ILWU, I think out there yeah. is on the on the yeah. courts. That was a particularly like radical union that had had yep. some wildcats, like and and was like like more democratic than any of the many of the other unions in 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 those those states but uh yeah but that's a, that's also like a big story for another time obviously yeah. <laughs> um the co- the co-optation of global anti-globalization over the 20 year period <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know this is kind of corny but like what what can we actually learn from what happened there what went wrong and sort of what the limits of it was yeah. Okay. So the the legacy. So I think one legacy that um, the legacy that is most widely accepted and known, which we can go over quickly, is that it reintroduced class discourse largely into the popular, you know, the ninety nine percent, which is a very very bad class politics. <laughs> but like yeah. you know, like um, like the you know, it reintroduced some of that sort of class war class war discourse, and um, and I think more important than that, but but not that dissimilar, it um, reintroduced. Um, street politics into the U S um, I think a, a part of the legacy that gets forgotten 
um, because like the general, the, the globalness of the wave gets forgotten as well. Like is that when, when shit pops off in New York, everyone in the world knows, or yep. at least they did then. Right. Because America had been so successfully, you know, um, appeased politically for so long that I think that when Occupy popped off, um, in 2017, like in 2011, rather, it really like signaled to the world, like the rest of the world, like, oh, like this is real. Like even in the, you know, even in the center of empire, like, like people are rising up. Um, it's hard to remember and it's weird, but like there was an Occupy in, uh, New York, in a UK, yeah. there was one in Tel Aviv. There was actually kind of like a pro-Palestinian Occupy in Tel Aviv briefly. Um, yeah. and you know, I think maybe the most powerful sort of immediate tactical, um, offshoot of Occupy was Occupy Nigeria, um, in the first weeks of 2013, um, when uh, President Goodluck Jonathan um, took took the uh, fuel subsidies away, and there were like sort of two weeks of really intense revolutionary rioting um, in in Nigeria that that then called themselves Occupy as a way of being legible to the rest of the world. Um, I think the other legacies, though, that are that are a little more sort of subtle, I guess, is like that a lot of folks still in the struggle now. Like I will still meet people, you know, my age who like. I've met, I have two comrades here in Philly who I didn't know at the time, but who were organizing in New York, right? Like we probably hung out in rooms together. Like we probably, like we were probably in the same spaces, but like, so like a lot of folks, you know, it, each of these waves that has come has left, you know, some people leave, some people swing right, but like there's a residue of folks that like becomes the base for the next movement. And I think like Occupy really did provide a lot of people in a way that the gap between alter globalization and occupy didn't produce nearly as large a contingent of people. Yeah. Although of course there are those people. Um, but I think also like really importantly, like the tactics of occupy, like one of the things that was incredible about the George Floyd uprising was that every tactic that we, um, have tried in the last 10 years reemerged, right? There was a prison strike. There were, uh, indigenous blockades. There were me too style call outs, um, which of course developed out of um, punk and queer scene callouts that had been going on for a decade. But there were occupations, right? You had the Chaz in Seattle, which we can, you know, yeah. Situation, but we'll, 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 we're, yeah, we will get to that but, but one day. <laughs> in any case, in any case, like I think, like that, that has remained in the repertoire of proletarian struggle, like as a result of of Occupy, and 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 if it had just been Occupy, maybe it wouldn't. But as a result of the global movement of the squares, which obviously goes. Until Tahrir Square in 2013, 2014 in Turkey, I think is probably the 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 uh, Gezi Park in uh, Turkey, um, which is like the last big moment of the squares, really. Um, but that five year wave, like it was really really important um, globally, really really important uh, locally as well, um, in terms of building activists, building a class of of well, I don't you know whatever, building revolutionaries, whatever you want to call them, the good version of the thing, not the bad version. You <laughs> produced a lot of them, um, and um, and I think like. In terms of its limits and like what we can learn from it, like I think, I think taking the police more seriously was really important. I think taking police violence more seriously was a really important legacy of Occupy. I think, um, I think pushing towards the limit of what total democracy meant. A lot of people in Occupy remember that like a lot of Ron Paul people and like weirdo like and the Fed cranks and like right wingers like spoke in Occupy and like a. That 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 total open populism of of Occupy, I think, was both probably its greatest strength and its ultimate limit, right? Which was that like it was never going to be able to really like sharpen itself into the into the knife it it wanted to be to like really change the face of of global capital or whatever, um, because of because there were so many white 
yeah middle class yeah and like involved. A, like a, a bunch of the uh like a lot of the like the the current far right media people came out of it. like Sandra Fairbanks was like an Occupy streamer uh, Tim Pool yeah you're welcome for Tim Pool um, Tim Pool <laughs> was filming on the last day a bunch of us um, doing some things and Tim Pool did not manage to continue filming is all I'll say <laughs> and um, after that is when he started swinging right so you're welcome. <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> sorry, that guy's a fucking asshole. He yeah. was an asshole then though. I think what's important to know is that a lot of these people were sus as hell back then to Occupy folks. Like they were around in Occupy because of the nature of Occupy. Like, but like they were, we already didn't like them. You know, like a lot of these people were already unpopular, were already disliked in the movement. Um, so yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, so I think, you know, there is there there are all these different legacies um, from it that I think um, ultimately the legacy things that emerged are much more important than Occupy. Um, I think you know one of the things about it was that it really was just like the reemergence of street politics and like like as the reemergence of street politics, like it was pretty limited and it was not that effective at changing things. Um, and also, it was incredibly effective at leading to the last decade of struggle in the U.S. And I think you can't. You know, I think there's a tendency to want to judge movements by the immediate results that they um, produce, you know, um, and like, you know, I think, was it, is, it, is this, am I about to quote Mao? I think I am. Was it like <laughs> when, when he gets asked, you know, what was the, what was the, you know, in, in the 20th anniversary of the Chinese revolution, he gets asked like, what was the, what was the, the outcome of the Chinese revolution? He says, it's too early to tell. Right. Like, I think like that. Maybe that's Xiao. I don't remember who that is. Honestly. Yeah, I don't know, but um, they but were right. <laughs> like, yeah, they were right. <laughs> they but were like, right. A like, lot more people died than what we thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, they they exactly. they successfully transitioned to capitalism, and they transitioned to they, capitalism. They did a great yeah. Job. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. So, um, so what was the result of Occupy? It's too early to tell. Um, but I think like I also think like the things that we've talked about here um, were, were core components of, of what it, what why it mattered. I, I do think one other kind of effect that it's had, and it's hard for me to gauge this because I've only been around post Occupy, but sure. I feel like now when people try to get stuff started, they really fall kind of into an Occupy mindset where they're like, the only way to make this successful is to hold this space. And I think that is really a default way that even more experienced, like both experienced organizers and new organizers really kind of just, I keep using the word default. It's because like, that's just, that's yeah. just really like what they go into. You saw this in a lot of different cities last year, where they like people trying to set up spaces to hold. Um, a lot of them did not work. <laughs> you know, a lot of them, a lot of them were like, Oh yeah, we're trying to, trying to hold the space for like an hour because then the cops pushed us out, right? And, and you know, in a place like the Chaz, it got extended out a bit longer. The Chaz had its own problems. Um, in other cities in the Pacific Northwest, this happened. A city happened in Atlanta the, too. It happened in Atlanta. It, ha- it happened in a lot of places. I mean, like I think George Floyd Square is maybe one of the more honestly successful ones um, for how they were able to able to actually kind of keep police away and. They did. They avoided turning it into this big media thing, like like with the Chaz right. did. Um, and I don't know. Like I think I I grew very. I I I saw a lot of people kind of grow kind of frustrated with this like kind of occupy mentality because what that kind of results in is people just setting up outside of a police headquarters and trying to stay yeah. there for as long as possible, which is like that's not doing anything. You're just kind of waiting to get beat up. 
Um, yeah, yeah, but it's complicated though, right? Like in defense of that tactic, <laughs> like I think like like that was also very co- that was also very core to Ferguson, right? They held West Florissant for a week and a half. Now they did it much. They didn't do it by setting up tents and sitting there. Um, and also like you know like like a thing that gets forgotten a lot in the la- in the history is you know Occupy ICE. It was pretty small. It was big yeah. here in Philly. Yeah, um, it was it was there, massive here in Portland. Yeah, yeah. So so like there were moments when that tactic really does like it's important to have a space to meet in. And I think we did learn that, but I also agree that it has become like any tactic that works once it becomes a fetish. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's yeah. always trying to balance space. Cause like, you know, the, the, the two big things that have happened the past 10 years is occupying Hong Kong. So people try to balance these two kind of almost opposing things like hold this space and be water. That's kind of the two things that people yell in the street back and forth. And no one really knows what to do. Cause we're just yelling slogans. And yeah, it's, and, 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 and I was I was interesting about this. So, so the, they're like the one time the people in Hong Kong got pinned down when when they had to, when they had to, this, this whole university siege. It was a shit show. Like, right. and you know, and I would say like the, the the people in Hong Kong like, you know, okay, like even when they were like they they did not have by 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 the time you're getting to the 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 sort of the siege of the universities like that like you know like they had like Molot- they had like like Molotov workshops. Like there were people like standing on the roof shooting bows and arrows at cops, and it like it just wasn't enough. And I mean, and par- par- partially it has to do with the fact that like, you know, H- Hong Kong is in a uniquely bad position insofar as it is one city, and it's like the 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 only possible way that a, a, a social movement in Hong Kong like ever just doesn't get crushed by just the fact that they're outnumbered like a thousand to one is if it spreads. But like, yeah, it, it, it became this, you know, like that that moments like yeah the the this that that the whole problem with with trying to hold space becomes really apparent there because even if you have an extremely large number of people right like like attack the evidence keeps pouring in at this point the facts are undeniable it's an open and shut case monopoly go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams, constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. one isolated space in mass is the thing the cops are really good at and the thing they're really bad at is trying to deal with like you know like 500 people like 700 instances of 500 people going through places because there just aren't enough of them but yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a, what was it like the the head of who was it it was a big yeah a a big muck muck in the, in the national police in the national police uh you know whatever um said that like we can very easily handle one march of 10,000 people, but we can't handle 10 marches of 1,000 yeah. people, right? It was, it, and you, you got to see this in Chicago, too. Like, this is, this is, this is how the police lost control of, of, of the Miracle Mile. It's like, yeah, it was just, there's people everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, and that's, and that's how, that's, that's what, you know, I mean, certainly in Philly, where it, was, where it was very, very powerful, that's what the George Floyd Rebellion looked like, was when mm-hmm. people were everywhere in Philly, all the neighborhoods. You know, people didn't, you know, like, we were out there, you know, whatever. Um, and like... There, like people didn't know what was going on three blocks south. You know what I mean? Like it was like it yeah. was like that. Like there was just there were fights happening everywhere. And under those conditions, the police can't can't no matter how militarized they are, they can't act. Yeah. Um. Effectively, anyway, they can act. They 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 certainly will. Um. They will act like pigs. Um. But uh. But I think like. Yeah. So I think that 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 sort of dispersion. But I think the other there's this, so there's. I'm going to promote a really, really weirdo crank book right now. Because this guy, <laughs> sure. Go this, for this it. 20, this 20th century, like literary weirdo, this guy, uh, Ilias Canetti, um, Italian oh, guy. Oh, oh boy. Wrote this, <laughs> called, wrote this book called Crowds and Power, where yeah. he attempts to, he attempts to describe the entirety of human history and anthropology in terms of crowds. This is obviously impossible and ridiculous, but that book has the best descriptions of crowd dynamics I have ever encountered anywhere. Interesting. Um, and I like I like people who take big swings because they end up they miss. Yeah, like, yeah. Miss has lots of interesting <laughs> stuff. Um, I think that's why people liked Settlers by Jay Sakai so much. Like I think the thesis wasn't great, but there's so much incredible stuff in that book that like it works anyway. Um, that having a really wild thesis allows you to like really like get into some interesting yeah. stuff. So anyway, one of the things that Kennedy talks about in that book is that. Um, a crowd, uh, uh, an open crowd, as he describes it, an open crowd is um, must constantly be growing, and the moment it stops growing, it starts shrinking. Right? Yeah. And, like this, I, th- I think that dynamic, um, in terms of both movement and like a, a momentary protest or riot, right, 
is like really real. I can I, I can think, totally see that. Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, particularly organizers are trained to do, and like that 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 we learn to do, especially in lull periods when we're like organizing these little you know you know these little crystallized groups of like hard cadre or whatever, is that like you that like what we learn as organized is something that is defendable. But once you start defending something, you start losing it because we cannot take on the state or the police in a head-on confrontation. Um, and this is this can be confusing because sometimes you can successfully defend for a few weeks, maybe even a few mm-hmm. months. You can defend a space sometimes. But once people get really interested in the defending, then they begin forming bureaucracies, governments, internal policing, security forces, whatever it is. They start becoming the like the the they start undermining the very thing that made it powerful, which was this sudden rapid growth, this sudden like you know like like big explosion of power and self recognition that um, comes in the beginning of movement. And I think I don't think there's a way to will that problem away. Like I don't think we can just like think our way out of it. Like it's just a problem. But I do think that like one thing that we could take from the experience of Occupy and the experience of the last decade. Is that like if you do, you know, consider yourself someone who wants to participate in these kind of movements, which is probably why you're listening to this podcast um, right now. Um, don't try and defend. Like, don't try and defend. Like, some things will need to be defended sometimes, obviously. But like, if your main thing is like the thing, we should never defend something we've achieved so far. Um, we should never not be willing to destroy it in order to like build something bigger, right? Like we should never, no movement thing that we have, be it an Occupy Park, be it an, be it a, like a taken space, defending that should never outweigh the possibility of expanding. And if that's our strategic mindset, obviously moment to moment, you can't just be thinking that constantly. Yeah. But if the strategic mindset is like what we have now is, is only good to the extent that it can turn into something more um, rather than we have to defend what we have now. If you can think that way, I think it opens up a lot of strategic possibilities. Um, and I think it, it's what has worked um, over the last decade that, that I've seen is um, when people attack, when people expand, when people try to do try to do new stuff, it doesn't always work and it doesn't always hold. But that's but when that stuff stops happening, the movement is doomed. I think I think that I think that's a really good way to wrap things up. I think that's a nice, uh, beautiful sentiment. I kind of view this type of thing in more than just protests and, you know, in, in very different facets of life, I think you can always learn from past experiences, from past struggles. But if you try to perfectly replicate them, you're absolutely going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You can, should always learn and move on, but you should not be focused on any kind of replication. Is, is there any of uh, your books or writings you'd, you'd want to plug before we wrap up here? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wrote a book uh, that came out last year um, called in defense of looting um, came out in 2020. Um, with bold type, um, I am currently also writing. Um, I, I'm obsessed with movies. I write a movie review um, column for the Al Jazeera Plus. Um, I, d- uh, I did not know newsletters. That. Yeah, the newsletter Substack. Um, if you want to read, I mean, it's really it is really movie reviews. So if you want, you know, cranky anarchist theory, it's not the spot for you. Um, otherwise, yeah, I'm I'm on a pretty long t- social media break right now. But good you can for find you me on there. Eventually, um, I'll probably <laughs> come back inevitably. Um, Unfortunately, and yeah, just yeah. Um, you know, I just have I I have writing popping up every every now and then, and and um, and if you read it, I would appreciate it. Well, <laughs> is that helpful? Yeah, absolutely, wonderful. Thank you, uh, and yeah, thank you for so much for coming on to talk about um, Occupy and stuff that I think a lot of people hear about, but 
I know at least a lot of my generation does not fully kind of grasp it. Um, it is it is literally my pleasure. Like I, you know, I wasted so much of my life thinking about this. I'm so glad to be able to share <laughs> some of it with some people. <laughs> I'm so glad, so glad you're able to join us too. This is I've, I've been looking forward to this for a while. So, yeah, it's very excited. All right, that wraps up uh, us today. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at CoolZoneMedia and Happen Here Pod. We'll be back in uh, for a few more episodes this week. Adios. Executive producer Paris Hilton brings back the hit podcast, How Men Think. And that's good news for anyone that is confused by men, which is basically everyone. Get an inside look at what goes on in the mind of men from the men themselves. It's real talk, straight from the source. The How Men Think podcast is exactly what we need to figure them out. It's going to be fun, informative, and probably a bit scary at times. Because we're literally going inside the minds of men. As much as we like to think all men are the same... They're actually very different. Each week, a celebrity guest host provides honest advice in his area of expertise. When I agreed to do this reboot, I had a few conditions. No sugarcoating, no mind games, and absolutely no mansplaining. Men are hard enough to understand without the mind games. Listen to How Men Think on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jake Halpern, host of Deep Cover. Our new season is about a lawyer who helped the mob run Chicago. We controlled the courts. We controlled absolutely everything. He bribed judges and even helped a hitman walk free. Until one day when he started talking with the FBI and promised that he could take the mob down. I've spent the past year trying to figure out why he flipped and what he was really after. From my perspective, Bob was too good to be true. There's got to be something wrong with this. I wouldn't trust that guy. He looks like a little scumbag liar, stool pigeon. He looked like what he was, a rat. I can say with all certainty, I think he's a hero because he didn't have to do what he did, and he did it anyway. The moment I put the wire on the first time, my life was over. If it ever got out, they would kill me in a heartbeat. Listen to Deep Cover on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Eve Rodsky, author of the New York Times bestseller, Fair Play, and Find Your Unicorn Space, activist on the gender division of labor, attorney, and family mediator. And I'm Dr. Aditi Narukar, a Harvard physician and medical correspondent with an expertise in the science of stress, resilience, mental health, and burnout. We're so excited to share our podcast, Time Out, a production of iHeart Podcasts and Hello Sunshine. We're uncovering why society makes it so hard for women to treat their time with the value it deserves. So take this time out with us. Listen to Time Out, a Fair Play podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that was the introduction. I did it, Sophie. Sophie's saying that's an acceptable introduction. You know what podcast this is. You clicked on it, so I don't need to tell you the title. I don't need to say who we are. I'm just going to dive right into the fucking episode. No, I'm not. This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast about uh, things falling apart and uh, and what to maybe do to to arrest that and do something better in its place. And uh, 
You know, folks who are, are regular listeners who listen to the original scripted episodes of It Could Happen Here, the first 15 episodes, which I certainly recommend to everybody, know that one area in which I kind of separate from a lot of uh, particularly more liberal folks and even some folks on the left is uh, an embrace of the fact that uh, firearms are sometimes necessary tools, especially in times of collapse when things get bad. Um, now, that said, we're also not... Uh, uh, kind of uh, gun culture people here. We try not to, for one thing, recommend that everybody necessarily pick up a gun. There's a lot of people, uh, perfectly nice people, who shouldn't have them, who don't need to have them, you know, if you're dealing with suicidal ideation or whatever. We're not, the point is, we try to be very careful about how we we talk about firearms as a potentially useful or even potentially necessary tool in the times that we're in. And today, since we're a few weeks into this, we've covered producing food, we've covered some medical stuff, we've talked about uh, community organizing and a number of other things that I think are priorities for most people before, you know, getting strapped. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about getting strapped. Uh, and my guest today is Paul. Paul, do you want to kind of introduce your background in brief so people know why uh, why you're on here? Sure, Robert. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps and infantry, and after that... I went to security consulting and then to uh, the Federal Protective Service and finally the ATF, some of uh, our f funnest agencies. <laughs> yeah, all my favorite organizations there. <laughs> yeah, well, they're better uh, than the, the, what is it, the FDA. Yeah, they, they beat the FDA. I mean, in terms of body count, they're certainly better than the FDA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what, what do you do now, Paul, that you're, uh, you're, you're out of that line of work? Uh, well, I do two things. I got a day job at Disney World, mm -hmm. and then uh, the the side gig is we run a explosives and machine gun supply company, also body armor, a handful of other things. But uh, that that's the big thing is destructive devices. Yeah, and uh, you've you've got. I think experience that a lot of people, particularly on this side of the political aisle, lack. You know, one of the one of the downsides of uh, kind of rejecting the federal government and and the military and all its forms is that there's a lot of people who may accept the validity of being armed and don't really have much in the way of practical training. And firearms are tools that to use most efficacy do require training and practice. You can't just um. You can pick them up and be dangerous, but not in a way that is particularly protective to you in your community. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about kind of recommendations and, and everything we talk about. Nothing. We're we're not talking in the context of forming a militia uh, or in the context of, <laughs> you know, showing up with guns to to yell at people at a protest. If that's the thing you're choosing to do, that's a whole different ballgame. We're talking about um, kind of responsibly arming yourself and your community in a way that is not going to get you in legal trouble. Um, it is also not going to endanger them because one of the things you have to accept about firearms is that um, there's a risk, you know, related to owning a firearm, um, not just the risk that like, you know, suicide risk raises if you have a gun in the house, but just um, if you don't use them properly, even carrying a gun, you know, it's not uh, uh, unheard of for people carrying guns to have those weapons taken from them and used against them. It happens to police and it happens to to armed citizens. So it's it's a matter of... Um, you know, uh, I think when you accept that you're going to be armed, there's something incumbent upon you to understand the risks of being armed. And I guess that's kind of where I want to start. Like, what are some of the big pitfalls you see people uh, fall into, like, 
um, that I think traditionally training is supposed to uh, uh, help allay to some degree? Uh, well, probably number one is uh, grandpa's gun in the closet that's been there mm -hmm. for 40 years unfired and somebody just picks it up and mm -hmm. throws some ammo in it to go hunt a deer and, um, you know, it's got a barrel obstruction or something. It just blows up, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but number two, and and the one that can be mitigated by training rather than just general uh, not being stupid, because it's kind of stupid to pick something up that's really old and just try to shoot mm -hmm. it, is um, not shooting yourself. <laughs> and when you do go out to the range, not shooting other people, and then not shooting people in your own home, um, mm -hmm. you know, you don't... <sighs> As much as you might want to say, defend your own home, do you want to uh, shoot your wife when she comes home at 2.30 in the morning uh, after work and wakes you up? Um, and there are ways to mitigate that. And, and it's really easy and it's really cheap. So... Yeah, let's 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 start with some of those. Just if you're if you're new to if you've decided I need a gun for whatever reason, you purchase a gun. Um, you know, I, I think the most basic first things are are in terms of like actually making that relatively safe is number one, knowing which which kind of firearm to purchase. And yep. number two, and these are not an order of importance, these are both very important. Number two is securing that weapon properly as opposed oh, yeah. to just having it laying loose in the house, uh, which is never the best place to best way to store a firearm. <laughs> is it? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I own a number of personal firearms. Um, you know, I, I'm in my office right now where I got a locked door and nobody can get in and I got a gun safe back behind the monitors. Um, and you know, I, I'm comfortable with that, but if, if it was in a place where kids could get at it, you don't want to just stuff it in, uh, in a sock in the closet, mm -hmm. which is actually what my mom did when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, safe storage. Uh, and I mean, really being able to identify your target is probably the biggest preventer of like uh, in inter-family accident. Because I know, you know, we do talk about safe storage, kids and all that. But um, back to the wife coming home, if you just put a light on your gun, a hundred dollar mm -hmm. light, you can look at the thing that you're shooting in the middle of the night and uh, not shoot someone you don't want to shoot. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that, like, if you've got a, a home defense weapon without a light on it, um, you don't fully have a home defense weapon. No, uh, no, you, yeah, it, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to be useless in roughly half of the situation. Statistically, yep. like if you're looking at when people are actually tend to be endangered in their own homes, the vast majority of the situations in which you might be in danger. Um, when it comes to weapon selection, uh, this is an er another area where like if you go on maybe one of the worst places in the world to have this discussion <laughs> is Twitter because everybody oh, has God. their opinions yeah. on Twitter. Um I, I tend to say because I think most people, when they're looking for a first gun, if they're if they're committed, just like thinking of personal defense, they're going to go for like a Glock or something. And I, I think unless you're planning on carrying a gun, and you can correct me if you disagree here, but I, I tend to think a handgun, again, unless you're intending on carrying a concealed weapon, is is the last thing that you should own as a gun owner. Um, uh, I got a mixed opinion on that. I okay. mean, yeah, I I think that. Uh... The handiness of yeah. a handgun can outweigh some of the issues. I, I know you guys dealt with fires up there. We have hurricanes. Yep. yep. Um, being able to stick a handgun into a backpack 
you know, it can go a long way or being able that to is just, a good point. Um, keep, keep it on you in your car. Cause I, I here we, we're and that we're will depend on state carry. laws. Yeah. <laughs> Everything oh, yeah. we say depends on state laws. Yeah. But yeah if, there are states if, where you can. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in uh, California and you're in one of the mm-hmm. counties that it doesn't issue a concealed carry license, like LA, it's really hard to get yeah. one from what I understand. Yeah. You got to get um, to San Bernardino if you want to get one of those. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. first off, like two, th- I got a short list of guns and like two thirds of the list illegal in California. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not on roster, but for what's most usable against or most handy, it, it's probably a handgun. But if you're expecting a threat more than mm-hmm. uh, like 30 feet away, have something other than a handgun. Handguns, they suck at hurting people. They suck at killing people. Yeah. They're, they're ineffective. Um, they're hard to use. I mean, th- oh, you yeah. say 30 feet away, but if you're not training regularly, hitting something reliably in a stressful situation at 30 feet with a handgun it, it can is be difficult. Be, it's, yeah. it's not yeah. easy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's not easy. And I, I tend to recommend, number one, there are some options. Like even if you're sticking with a handgun, there are different kind of, um, like, uh, uh, options for that. Like I, I, I'm a big, <laughs> uh, advocate of pistol caliber carbines, which is essentially oh, they're cool as fuck. the size of a small rifle. So you can fit them easily in a backpack. Every backpack I've yep. owned, you can, you can stick something like, um, like a CZ Scorpion in without much yeah, difficulty. Yeah. And because they're, so when you're talking about what makes a weapon easier to use, Number one of the number one things is size. So the longer the barrel, the more accurate it is. The heavier the gun, the less recoil is a problem. The easier it is to use at range. Um, and a pistol caliber carbine, you know, you stick a light on that. That's a, a really good home defense weapon. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, especially uh, people will argue about the different types of magazines. Mm-hmm. But if you yeah. buy one that takes a, a Glock magazine yep. and you have a Glock, you can build a full little loadout that just mm-hmm. takes all the same magazines. One is more accurate. One is a handgun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all the same ammo. You're not having to uh, uh, figure out and read a bunch on, on what kind of ammo you need and stuff like that. You just buy one and it works for everything. Yeah. Um, and and when, when you're talking about ammo, I think one of the most important things, like, especially if you're worried about a survival situation is, is availability, um, which is the nice thing about like what we call the NATO caliber. So the NATO calibers oh. are nine millimeter, seven, six, two by 51, better known as 308. Your grandpa's hunting rifle oh. is seven, six, two by 51. Um, or it's 30 out six, but whatever. Um, and then five, five, six slash two, two, three. And those are the rounds. That's like five, five, six is the standard. That's what's in your bog standard AR 15. Um, and so almost no matter what happens, um, including, you know, ammo crunches, you will be able to find some amounts of, of those oh, yeah. calibers generally. D- dig even through your neighbor's got... drawer yeah. and you're going to find <laughs> yeah. a box of bullets. They might not even own um, a gun and they got a box yeah. of nine millimeter. Yeah. Everybody's got nine millimeter. And, um, so yeah, I, I think that the, the, the basics of like, um, what to get if you're looking at kind of just a basic defensive arm, um, you know, how to store it safely, you know, those kind of questions are important. Um, when it comes to training, uh, could, what are some of, in your opinion, like the, the mistakes that you see people make when it comes to kind of, of, of practicing training with their weapon? Um, going to an NRA basic, like four hour class and thinking mm-hmm. that you are a God, um, mm-hmm. There, there are people who have spent um, five days a week going to classes and doing training because there, there's practice and then there's training. Training is where someone teaches you something. 
uh, practices where you, you go with what you're already taught, right? Um, so there, there are people that spend all that time and they're still not uh, uh, the best in the world. Um, there are people who do a ton of practice. Jerry Micklick, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen him shoot, but he's uh, he's like the fastest gun in the world or something like yeah. that. Um, yeah, his videos are crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he'll, he'll outshoot a, a full auto gun. You yeah, know, with with revolvers. Uh, yeah, and it's just like, you know, it's just absolutely mind blowing. Um, but no, yeah, the, he's the, like uh, he's like he's like Michael Jordan or something. You know, you just get these oh, yeah. people who have uh, uh, almost it's just na- natural of, ability. Yeah. Um, Certainly married with a uh, practicing, but yeah, continue. If if you had a fight, uh, a gunfight, which they they really don't happen that much, but if you had a gunfight no. between um, a guy with a high point C nine. Who Which had is ta- one of the cheapest, uh, cheapest ugliest handguns you can uh, get. A yeah. Quote reliable handguns on the face yeah. of the earth. If if you had a guy with that that had had paid five hundred dollars for a training class over a weekend and still went and uh, uh, went to the shooting range every week and practiced, and um, or not even every week, just every month, and then did dry fire drills once a month in his garage or whatever, versus a guy who went out and bought a uh, Wilson Combat three thousand dollar. 1911 but had only taken the nra class i will bet on the guy with the c8 uh, yeah or the c9 all day long um even if he's only got one bullet you know Mm -hmm. yeah don't don't care he'll win and often like for all of the for all of the guys you see you know with in all of their tactical gear and whatnot and and their spare mags taking like 300 rounds out oh god if you actually look at most defensive shootings, um, it's very common, and I think like it's like majority, three to five rounds. Yeah, three to five rounds. Yeah, three to five rounds. Generally closer than thirty feet. Sometimes closer than like ten or fifteen. The, um, this sits in my pocket most of the time. It's is it's that just a Glock a, nineteen? No, it's a forty-three. Oh, Glock so, forty-three. Yeah, so tiny. Um, yeah, it has more bullets than I'll ever need in a gunfight. Probably. Yeah. I think I want to pivot from this point to. Um, we started this by introducing that uh, you you spent some time in the ATF, uh, spent some time in the <laughs> FPS. Uh, I haven't had any personal interactions with the ATF, but I have met some FPS guys on the streets of Portland. <laughs> you know, um, I'm kind of curious, especially as because I, I came in contact with you through your through your Twitter, where you're you're very my, my, vocal. Yeah. My, yeah. my personal Twitter. Yeah. And you're, you're quite politically active now um, in a way that I think is surprising to people for someone with your background. Are you comfortable with kind of tracing uh, sort of the broad strokes of your journey there? Because I think that's instructive um, for folks. Oh, at FPS specifically? Well, just kind of what brought you from there to here? Oh, um, so I got kind of, uh, oh man, what, what's what's the word for when you just get a... Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I got to a point, I showed up for, uh, for work at four 30 in the morning mm-hmm. and I was literally shuffling through some, some paperwork and, and was, um, getting ready to file a warrant and just kind of realized I didn't think that it needed to happen. And, you know, I, I, I talked to my supervising agent about it and, um, was kind of told too bad and, and I put in for some vacation time and ended up um, putting in my resignation while I was on vacation. I mean, that that's the gist of how I became uh, not a cop. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering kind of what, uh, have, do you think, is there anything that kind of, I don't know, what looks different to you now as you've kind of left that behind? Was it like sort of a, 
um, I'm guessing there's like a period, like a goldfish, you know, in a new bowl of, of acclimation to, to life outside of being a cop. Um, like what, what were the first kind of things that started to shift in your perspective when you left that, that thought space? I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, watching, uh, or reading whatever an article or a YouTube video, especially now that body cams are more and more mm -hmm. uh, prevalent, it is watching something reading the uh the press release and going but that's that's not what happened like i just watched it and 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 going from being able to justify it in your own mind and literally mm -hmm. argue with people and be a hundred percent convinced like that was a good shoot mm -hmm. um Castillo, what was it F philandro castillo yeah oh god yeah, oh he, god and he was i the, mean if you've if you've gotten lost track of this shooting in between all the others. Philando was a, a a black man, a legal gun owner with a legal concealed carry permit who was pulled over yeah. with his girlfriend and child in a car and uh, hands on the wheel told the officer he had a gun uh, and got shot. Um, yep. You know, and, and did the thing you're supposed to do. Although now actually since then you will get like some states will and some training classes will recommend if it's not legally required and you're carrying a gun, don't say anything for that reason. But I mean, yeah, he, he went, vary. yeah, uh, the, the command to not reach for the gun to mm -hmm. being shot multiple times in the chest was like under two seconds. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I mean, the decision was already made as soon as, as soon as he gave yeah. the command, the decision was made. Um, and, and yeah, here's what that brings me to in terms of a question that's relevant to the topic of, of community self-defense of potential community armed self-defense. Because that's not that is a that is a cop problem, but that's not just a cop problem. And what that's happened an everybody in the, problem uh, <laughs> in the chop in the Chaz in Seattle, yep. the uh, the autonomous zone is evidence of that. You had this situation where people, after nights and nights of mostly inaccurate warnings about Proud Boys coming to attack, got amped up. They had guns. Some kids drove by in a car and they fucking shot them to death. Um, and it is the same. It's the same mental thing happening. You don't have to have a badge for that that mindset to to infect yeah. you, especially when you're carrying a gun. Um, how do you, in your opinion, fight back against that? <laughs> Be fucking chill. Uh, you know, like like <laughs> yeah. on, honestly, um, yeah. you, if you were a teenager, which we grew up in almost the same place. You're from Plano. I'm, yeah. I'm from uh, Capel. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I would have argued with you about them being the same place when I was in Plano, place. but they're the same yeah, place. Yeah. They're the no, same they're place. absolutely the same place. Like, yeah. One has, uh, one has, uh, woot.com and the other one has Raytheon. So, yeah. you know, and a bunch of hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, it, it, you, you and I grew up in the same time, same place, same types of schools. How many times did you see in like high school or even middle school, just a, a guy hit on a girl and then the girl's boyfriend comes over and just starts fighting him? Yeah. Like, like, like the, the guy had no reason to know he, he didn't know he was doing anything wrong. Um, and, and I'm not suggesting, uh, or I'm sorry, what I'm pointing out is that, um, it's almost ingrained in uh, us at a societal level to to react violently to maintain like our personal position. Yeah, and if that means that I'm in my neighborhood and I I don't recognize someone, 
it may seem like violence is the right way to go. That's actually what, what you're doing when like, uh, what's it called? Karening, you know, where you call yeah. somebody, the, the black kid yell, uh, uh, selling water bottles or whatever. Um, I know that was one in, in New York where the police came and harassed, you know, some like 12 year old black kids cause they were selling water bottles. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, in that case, you're not personally doing the violence. You're just calling somebody else to do it for you. Um, cause you know, the police are kind of violence, violence mm-hmm. of monopoly and all that. Yeah. 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 And that's, um, one of the most, I think, important things about that is the idea of, um, violence is, is like, like when you, when you're willing to accept violence to kind of maintain your, your, your social position or something, um, and I think that has a huge amount to do with with the kind of violence you see um, at protests with like we've had, you know, protests, quote unquote, security here in Portland. People kind of <laughs> declaring themselves security. And like, yeah, what the fuck does that mean? Shooting other kids with I, I know. guns for graffiti like no, But it is it is a matter for it's they're not doing it to protect anybody. They're doing it because they've declared themselves security. Somebody doesn't listen to what they say and their ego is hurt. It's the same thing that, again, cops do. It's this it's a human mindset. It's not just a a cop mindset. And, um, I think you, when you're talking about like, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, if you're going to be armed and if you're going to be armed in a community self-defense role, one of the things you have to accept is that like, you're not as, as a person who is armed and cares about the defense of your community, you're not a separate thing from them. I think that's no. one of the areas where, in, in which policing goes wrong. Yeah, I you mean, can't view yourselves as separate. Yeah. And, uh, I, I know you guys have a big problem with that. Um, we do here too. I, I live in mm-hmm. a metro, and mm-hmm. uh, our metro police, like ninety nine percent of them, don't even live in the county. Yeah, they yep. they all it's go about the same here. Yeah, yeah, they they don't even uh, not just the city. They don't live in mm-hmm. the whole county, um, and that's despite uh, they they get a living allowance if they'll live in the city. And there's a bunch of uh, if they live in the city, they get a take home car. There, there's a bunch of incentives to try and and get people to live here. And they still won't do it. They want to go live in the next sheriff over the next county where, uh, yeah, we have a very vocal sheriff, the next county over who's, who's really racist and all that shit. Um, And I, yeah, I think if you're, if you're talking about like the potential of, of uh, again, of like armed community self-defense, you almost, I almost would prefer phrasing it, differently community self-defense you know um with it should the be the entire community armed. yeah yeah, yeah it should I be mean... the community and you're not the, the the gun isn't what you are you're not you're not security you're not self-defense because you're armed <laughs> you're self-defense because you're a member of the community and if you yeah. personally choose to be armed that is an option that is expanded sure. to you specifically because you're armed but it, it doesn't change fun it shouldn't change what you are and if it does there's a phrase that I think is really useful. Um, the finger pulls the trigger. And if you want to avoid, or the trigger pulls the finger, sorry. And it, it, it's this idea that when you show up armed and you're showing up armed as someone, like your purpose there is to be armed, you're at, at heavy risk of the weapon guiding your responses. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the most important thing mm-hmm. in any circumstance to if, avoid if you're carrying a weapon. If, um, um, if you got a hammer, everything's a nail. Exactly. Is, yeah. Well, and I, and uh, the last 20 years, we, we've had kind of a, with the war on terror, you've mm-hmm. seen a proliferation in, in media around um, making 
Navy SEALs and all that shit mm-hmm. look re- really, really cool. Uh, every, every other movie is about that, even though, mm-hmm. like, really, they're just drunk guys who um, yell at people a lot. <laughs> and who occasionally commit murder to protect, or was that uh, was that the SEALs or was that the Green Berets who killed that guy to protect a drug trafficking ring? I mean, probably both. Oh, yeah. no, that, that was <laughs> it, the Green Berets out in North the, Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it crosses all, all borders. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that's come out of that is... Uh, we we've started to call those guys operators, right? Yeah. So you've gone from a gun being a tool that someone trains there to use to they are merely an operator of a weapon system, mm-hmm. um, and it it's kind of dehumanizing. Like it it allows you to get out of the thought on that. Um, it's exactly what you were talking about, where where the triggers really pulling the finger at that point. Um. Yeah, and it's it's. I I think there's a number of I don't know. I, I there's a number of tactics, and, and more than we can get through. And that we'll, we'll be talking with some other community self defense people at some point in the near future about this because this is a big topic, right? And it's not one. I haven't seen anyone do it super well yet in the United States. Like we, anytime you have kind of persistent <laughs> right wingers um, do every once in a while. Yeah, they <laughs> yeah <laughs> they take over BLM land. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then they and, die. I forgot about they, that. Yeah, yeah they did die. Gets, <laughs> get killed. Um, and I, I think that uh, it's it's a it's a really messy topic because of you know what you brought up is is a valid point. All the everything that all the kind of social baggage there is around weaponry in this in this country and in our and in our culture. This kind of like worship of the gun. And if you think like the left is is any more immune to that than the right you're wrong you see the same you know toxic oh, yeah. behavior all around you have to be extremely cognizant of it even if you know it's something to risk for there is um weapons in general have a a mental impact on us carrying them um and there is there is a level of just like being around weaponry that is uh entrancing it's it's a human thing you know we make weapons it's we're, we're yeah. tool using apes and weapons are some of the first tools that we made that that are responsible for why you know, we get to tell the dogs and the cats what to do. Um, and you have to you have to really approach being armed from a standpoint of rejecting a lot of that if you're going to do it responsibly. I mean, among other things, the idea that you might have to use a gun um, has to be you're you're wor- very close to your worst nightmare. Yeah. Um, because yeah, yeah. it would be it would be if you ever actually had to use one. Um, at minimum, you're talking like when you actually look at like legal self-defense shoots, you're talking minimum the next as if you kill somebody, at least minimum the next year of your life is is dealing with the legal consequences of that. Sure. And probably hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, uh, if you're having if 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 file if charges get filed, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. for like a capital defense case, yeah. if not millions. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and that's in you know the, the, there's one of the gun YouTubers that I like to uh, push people towards to, for this kind of stuff is a guy named Paul Harrell who is certainly more on the conservative <laughs> side, but who actually killed somebody in a self defense sure. and went through the whole legal process afterwards and he has a couple of videos where he talks about it and he gives I think pretty good advice on that that is that is completely without ego because it was a nightmare for him it was the worst experience of his life which is what it's going to be if you ever have to use a gun and that should be like that should be the top of your 
that should be the top of your mindset. You know, I've been in this situation a couple of times at protests where like someone pulls a knife uh, and starts lunging at people and I have a gun and I'm 15 feet away. And I, I never drew in part because it never quite crossed that line for me. And I, I knew that giving people the chance to de-escalate was vastly more important than um, introducing a second weapon to the situation immediately. Sure. And if things had gone differently, perhaps I would feel differently about my choices in that moment, but um, they didn't and nobody got hurt. And that's always the best case scenario, even if it's somebody you really dislike uh, who is who is threatening people with a weapon. I, um, I swear that happened up in Olympia like two weeks ago. Yeah, well... The shooting in Olympia, which was a guy named Tiny who got shot, um, and there's yeah. video of it. It's absolutely yeah, not a legally justified shoot, for sure. Like the, uh. the, the yeah, <laughs> he was he was like forty feet away, you know. Um, yeah, but he's really tall. He is big. He is. I, big. I think that counts for something. He, yeah, he was tall. He was tall. He was chasing them. He was armed. Um, I'm not making a moral case here. Just I know. I, I, I know. I think legally they would have had a trouble had they stayed around. Now, of course, they've got. Uh, I believe uh, they've I, been arrested at this point. Oh, have they? I I just heard yeah, that there I, have been visits. I think so. So sorry, I don't mean to crash it for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think I saw uh, our our best friend Andy post something about it. Um, oh yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. Two oh days yeah, ago. three days ago. Three. I yeah. must have missed this. Yeah. Okay. So they did. A, they did arrest the guy. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's another thing if you um, if you feel if if you're involved in like a shooting that you feel is a justified legal shooting, um, you don't you don't leave the scene. Uh, and in fact, one of the better videos you'll get on like what to do and uh, this guy's life has gone to shit because of the political nature of the shooting. But the guy in, um, in Denver who shot that dude at a protest, the, the Pinkerton oh, who man. fired that dude. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, no, no matter what you want to say about whether or not it was a good shoot. Yeah. That, that he dropped that fucking guy. He dropped I mean, that gun. I mean, he dropped his head him. down on his knees. Oh yeah. 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 He, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it it was you know again the court case is not settled out so I don't know if that guy's story is going to end happily but in terms of if you want to not get shot yourself and you want to have the maximum chance of defending yourself if you have to shoot somebody in a situation that's legally justified what that guy did after the shoot is is how to handle it yeah um yeah. and I I mean the evidence for that is he did not get shot and obviously your mileage with that's going to vary depending on your skin color uh um, yeah that's a big yeah. factor yeah. <laughs> In terms of uh, actual training people can like pay for if they if they want to take that step, which I think is a good idea. Um, wh who do you do you, do you have kind of like broad recommendations for how people can know if something's, you know, because there's this is certainly a, a space where there's a lot of grifters and whatnot. Um, um, you... Yeah, I mean, most of the uh, beginner level uh, how to fight with a gun classes mm -hmm. are two to three days long like that that's a good starting point is, is the fact that you're gonna pay probably three to five hundred dollars per day um and it's going to be multiple days long you you, you can't uh, because you're going from a baseline uh you know they know you already know how to point and shoot a gun but they're gonna go for everything on uh how to draw how to move how to reload um, you're going to have some classroom time going over the, their specific safety instructions and stuff like that. Um, but anything you can do in one day or four hours or 
uh, 40 rounds or whatever, it isn't going to cut it. Um, mm-hmm. You need to go get something and you need to listen because they're going to yeah. ask you to do things that might not be the way you want to do it. You might say, yeah, that's not the way my dad taught me how to reload a handgun. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a, a good example is actually um, tactical response in Tennessee. They A lot of people hate them, but they have a very specific way that they say everyone reloads this way in our, our class. You know, you put it in and you slingshot the slide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and people argue and go, well, I want to just press the button. Well, the button's cool and all, but we want you to slingshot the slide. Just do it for this class. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I got a little off topic there. No, no, no. Um, no. Yeah, that, that's a good point, too, because, I mean, just a lot go of in and, people... and listen. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't have to take everything away. You, you, you take what you saw. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics. 
as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As good usable information and merge that with what you already know, maybe throw away some of what you already know and you got this ball of goo that you can work with uh, for practice. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it it is. Uh, and to that point, when you're talking about like training, one of the differences between handguns and rifles, like all all shooting is always there's a degree of perishableness to it. But shooting a handgun is a much more perishable skill than shooting a rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's so if you're going to be armed with a handgun, um, it really behooves you to take to train, you know, um, yeah. because you're only as good as how often you've been out there, really. Um, and having a state, a good foundation, like taking some real professional classes will help a lot in that as opposed to just kind of going out to the range every now and again. But yeah, um, let's talk at the last, the last little bit of this here about kind of the gun that's always on the tip of everybody's tongue when you start talking about being armed, uh, and armed self-defense is, you know, the AR platform. Um, it's a gun with a lot of baggage, a tremendous amount of cultural baggage, and it's it has become vastly more than just a firearm in our culture. Okay. Um, what a what what do you what are kind of because I I am a big advocate of people who uh who are open to being armed getting an AR platform. I think oh, it's, yeah. it's a, a great gun to learn I on. I mean, yeah. it goes yeah, it goes bang really well almost yep. every time as long as it's from a, a reputable manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, despite what some people say, they're very reliable. Yeah. Um, they're easy to clean L- literally as long as you keep them lubricated, e- even in the field, you keep it lubricated. It will just, yep. just keep banging out rounds. And um, it, it functions in, you know, we talked about this during the episodes on like, you know, food storage and, and, and whatnot, like where there's a, there's the, there's the cheap version I, I like stuff where there's there's the cheap version that works and there's the expensive so, version that works, and you you have that with an AR. You can get a uh, very yeah. inexpensive AR, and you can you can replace every part of that AR over the next five years I, and have a six thousand dollar gun. I I, I did um, minor price checking last night because I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I haven't checked the price the retail prices on stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So in like your your budget tier normal price that, that's out right now. You got like a, a Ruger AR556. They're 700 bucks. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's dirt cheap and, and it's going to go bang. Just and the it's same. a great gun. Yeah. I have a yeah. friend who who's, who's AR is a Ruger 556 and they're very solid. Yeah. They just, they go bang every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to break it. Um, I mean, as long as you don't use it like a baseball bat, you're not going to break it. Yeah. Now, especially now that the Russian steel case ammo has been banned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then like the, the other end of the spectrum is you got a SIG, right? Yeah, I've got a couple. Okay, so you know what the Rattler is? Oh yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah, uh, I do so, not own a Rattler, but they are they are well, cute. <laughs> do, do you know how much? Well, for, first off, uh, the the Rattler it's a short barreled five five six. It's not really an AR fifteen, but like technically, it kind of is. Yeah. Um, it, and it, it it's. Well, how about this? How much do you think that the Rattler costs right now? Don't don't go oh, look. God. 
it's just just take a guess. Probably twenty five hundred bucks would be my guess. Twenty eight hundred. Twenty eight hundred. Yeah. Twenty eight hundred. Yeah. Now it's uh, now I actually put it in my category of honorable mention slash meme because mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a meme gun. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so tiny, um, but I don't want to get shot with it. But that's well, kind no, of the the, yeah. the spread we were talking about, which is you know you, you can get a seven hundred dollar gun. And it'll go bang the exact same mm-hmm. way as the Rattler. Um, it fires the same bullet. Um, and you can build up to something, not like a Rattler, but you can build up to um, a bunch of Noveski parts. You can throw a bunch yeah. of Noveski parts into a, that Ruger lower and upper that you bought and build a really awesome gun that will mm-hmm. be, you know, 99.9% reliable. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you can, uh, you know, I, I think generally if you're buying like a, again, you're, you're getting kind of a, a, a bargain basement AR, one of the first things that, that it's going to behoove you to replace is the optics. You know, it'll probably start with iron uh, sights, but. Shit, these yeah. don't even come with anything. <laughs> yeah, usually they, they come with nothing on them and you have to yeah. stick the irons or you stick a reflex sight. There's a whole world of um of optics. And I think one of the, actually one of the websites I, I recommend people check into if you're looking and kind of reading up on this and and doing your due diligence is pew pew tactical oh yeah um yeah they I know. do not written from like a super you know chuddy or, or whatever like you get a lot of very political gun websites that may have some good information but are frustrating to read they're not that way they're written you know for people who are not super aggro about guns but who are are, are, are interested in guns and you can find really good reviews on stuff but as a general rule Modern optics beat iron sights every day of the week. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you may if, prefer iron. I, and I do in some cases. On my AKs, I, I vastly prefer using irons, but that would never be the weapon I would pick if I was in a, a situation where I needed a weapon, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone should learn how to use iron sights. Absolutely. But if I can hand someone a $450 Aimpoint Pro... Mm-hmm. Which which is uh, the budget version of a high end optic. Mm-hmm. If I can put a four hundred and fifty dollar optic with the mount and everything onto a mm-hmm. rifle and just go, hey, just just put the dot on what you want to shoot. Yeah, you, you're done. Um, mm-hmm. Now there's a lot that goes past that, but yeah. we got rid of the entire uh, a proper sight alignment and all that. They just got to put the dot on the box and squeeze. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even even the Marine Corps, famous for for fielding marksmen, has gone. We're going to switch over to optic based training. Yeah, they're just. I mean, you look at even guys in like Idlib province, which is like one of the rebel provinces in Syria that's been persistently under siege for most of the last decade. Um, they're all using fancy optics now, like the, yeah. generally often Alibaba versions of like you yeah, know, name yeah. brand optics, but it does the trick, you know. I mean, it's um, a it's a Sig Romeo that never got yeah. the roll market for Sig on it. Yeah, um, exactly. And they paid a hundred bucks instead of four fifty. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that's most of what we can responsibly get through. I do want to end <laughs> on the caveat we started with this with, which is that um, deciding whether or not and, and, and I, I we advocate uh, firearms as an option, both as a legal option and something that can be for your community and for you as an individual, potentially practical. I don't blanket advise people to buy guns. I think in many cases, it's going to be counterproductive. I think you should not own a firearm. Again, if you're someone who struggles with suicidal ideation, 
they they can be a very dangerous thing to have in your home if that's something that that you battle with. I do think that they can be owned and used very responsibly. Uh, in addition to, I think shooting can be a really enjoyable pastime. Um, and I think more than anything, when a whole bunch of people who are talking about killing you all have guns, it it can behoove you to own a firearm as well if yeah. you're a member of one of those communities. So please don't take any of this as uh, Robert Evans says, everyone go buy a gun. But if you're going to buy a gun, there's there's a right way and a responsible way to go about it. And there's, you know, picking up a random 12 gauge and shoving it under your bed. Which oh, is... God, no. <laughs> yeah. no. No more shotguns for home defense. Yeah, they're not they're not ideal. Um yeah, I mean, we can we could talk about overpenetration and stuff, but is it, uh, yeah, is, yeah. I mean, um, just uh, being able to move lead in a direction, they're very bad at it. Yeah, um, um, yeah, yeah. They they they're not they're not. I mean, again, something like a, a, a an AR or a pistol caliber carbine is in a lot of situations going to be a much more practical and and have less risk of hitting stuff you don't want to hit necessarily get get the high point um yeet the the yeet yeah cannon. the yeet cannon yeah we'll we'll discuss that on our whole episode of about high points uh so you've shot yourself in the dick yes. <laughs> the high point story uh, uh all right well um do you want to paul you got any got anything to plug before we roll out here uh, give food to homeless people. Well, houseless, mm-hmm. houseless, yeah. I think is. Yeah. Um, and if you're in an area with a based DSA, mm-hmm. join the DSI and then vote out the shit libs. Um, that's what's happening here in Orlando. Um, but yeah, embrace anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, Robert Evans. This has been a podcast and, uh, and remember as we sail out, there's a reason the episode talking about guns came after the episodes talking about uh, storing and growing food. <laughs> <laughs> when P.T. Barnum's Great American Museum burned to the ground in 1865, what rose from its ashes would change the world. Welcome to Grim and Mild Presents, an ongoing journey into the strange, the unusual, and the fascinating. For our inaugural season, we'll be giving you a backstage tour of the always complex and often misunderstood cultural artifact that is the American Sideshow. So come along as we visit the shadowy corners of the stage and learn about the people who were at the center of it all. In a place where spectacle was king, we will soon discover there's always more to the story than meets the eye. So step right up and get in line. Listen to Grim and Mile Presents now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more over at grimandmild.com slash presents. I'm Tanya Sam, host of the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood. This daily podcast will help give you the keys to the kingdom of financial stability, wealth, and abundance. With celebrity guests like Rick Ross, Amanda Seals, Angela Yee, Roland Martin, J.B. Smooth, and Terrell Owens, tune in to learn how to turn liabilities into assets and make your money move. Subscribe to the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you leave a review. Welcome back to the 
it could happen here. Yeah, that's the podcast we're doing right now. Uh, it's a podcast about how things are kind of falling apart, uh, but maybe they don't need to, or at least not as much as they have been. I'm Robert Evans. Uh, with me, as often, is uh, my co-host, Garrison Davis. Uh, Garrison, um, say something inciting to the audience. I'm on my second cup of coffee. Yeah, because it is that's it is the early morning for you, by which I mean 2.11 in the afternoon. Um <laughs> Also with us today, our guest for this episode is David Van Dusen. Uh, David, you are the president of the State Labor Council for the Vermont AFL-CIO, and there's a, a bunch of stuff that's interesting about your organization. We'll dig into it in more detail in a second, but first I just want to say hello and thank you for being on the show. Pleasure to be here with you, Robert. Now, David, the big thing, I mean, the the Vermont AFL-CIO has been in the news a couple of times recently. The most recent one is y'all issued a statement making you the coverage i've seen has said the first labor organization in the u.s to like support gun rights i mean like as is stated in a lot of the stuff you've put out like blair mountain there's a long history of labor organizations making use of the second amendment Mm -hmm. but um i certainly haven't heard of a labor organization stating it the way you did which is basically the, the case you've made is because Far-right fascist organizations are so heavily armed, and any gu- all of the gun control policies being heavily debated, at least among liberals, are likely to ignore those people while restricting the ability of working class and particularly marginalized people to arm themselves. Um, you do not support those regulations because you support the rights of those groups to be able to defend themselves from uh, fascists. That more or less well, correct? <laughs> Well, look, we believe in the right of a people to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. But our policies, including that one, are not adopted by the elected leadership, including myself. They're adopted by our members. We believe very firmly in uh, democracy, participatory democracy. So with issues like this, we're happy to bring it to our convention, which we recently did, and facilitate a full debate on the issue. So that's exactly what we did. We talked about it. Our rank and file members talked about it. They made amendments. They debated uh, passionately different sides of the issue in a respectful um, way, in a productive way. A number of amendments were made. They were adopted. And then ultimately, the resolution was passed with over a two-thirds majority of our rank and file delegates in favor. So that's where we are right now. Yeah, I, I've read a, a bit about this, including, you know, there's been some critiques from um, a representative from the AFT, which is the the local teachers union. But there was also a member of the Vermont AFL-CIO who, who essentially stated like, hey, I didn't actually agree with this amendment but or with this resolution, but it was made democratically. And like, I, I, I support the, the process by which it was done, which is one of the things I think is is so interesting here that this isn't like. Um, um, a kind of a group of activists at the top making declaration, declarations. This is an organization that has really um, dedicated itself increasingly to, I think, a kind of progressivism that we, we haven't really seen in an organized way in a lot of the American labor movement until recently. Well, when you're talking about democracy within the labor, I mean, uh, we could be just as well talking about democracy in society as such. The fact is, is that organized labor today is not particularly democratic. And we're looking to change that. And our world is not particularly democratic. Now, the vision that we hold, our slate, our progressive slate called United, is one where we increase the means for direct participatory democracy, both within labor and within our society. So, of course, we're going to go to our members and our rank and file and ask them to debate the issues of our day and ultimately to make a decision 
uh, on these major political and social issues. Uh, this was one. We, again, we do believe that uh, people need to have a right, the working class needs to have a right to defend itself. And we can't bury our head in the sand. Anybody that's even followed a little bit of the news lately will know that between November uh, 2020 up until late January 2021, we were one general shy of a coup in this country. In the upside down world that we're now living in, it was because of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the head of the CIA not supporting a coup that a neo-fascist coup didn't totally uh, in full materialize in a more mature form. Let that sink in for a minute. Our democracy or the vestiges of the democracy we have in the United States right now is precarious. Uh, they Just because they've been there for 200 years doesn't mean they're going to be there tomorrow. The new playbook from an increasingly far-right Republican Party is to limit as much as they possibly could a people's right to vote and to participate in the political process. We see this happening in Texas. We see this happening in Georgia. We see this happening in Florida. We see this happening in red, uh, I shouldn't say red, but I should say Republican states all throughout the, the U.S. So these are dangerous, dangerous times, right? So dangerous that our top generals were trying to decide what their position would be and make plans uh, in case a coup, uh, a full-on coup, not just a hint of a coup, came into being within the last year of our republic. Now, given those realities and given the rise of the far right, given that our former president, Donald Trump, told the neo-fascist Proud Boys to stand, what did he say? Stand back and stand by. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and now, uh, at least they claim to have 40,000 members around the United States and they are armed. Uh, you know, we can't just rest on our laurels and, and pretend that the state as such is going to keep us safe. So uh, it seems prudent and reasonable uh, for us to have taken the action to say we defend our constitutional right uh, to bear arms uh, as intended uh, to defend our communities, to defend our unions, to defend the working class. And one of the things that because we were just talking about the, uh, the coup that very nearly got pulled off. Your organization, at least in uh, I believe it was right after the election in 2020, issued a statement that if the president illegally uh, attempted to stay in power, the former president, you would participate in an attempt to help organize a general strike. Now, that's something we talk about a lot on this show. We're big believers in the potential of a general strike. We're also big believers that it, a, a, the kind of general strike that we need to, I don't know, potentially get climate justice and a number of other major things is a an undertaking on par with the space race. You know, you're talking about an, an enormous task. I'm really interested in picking your brain on when we talk about a national general strike, what is the kind of infrastructure that's actually necessary to make something like that feasible? Because there's a lot of talk on like Twitter yeah. and Facebook of like, let's just do a general strike on this day yeah. in October. And I, I, yeah. I, 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 uh, six months doesn't go by as president of AFL-CIO Vermont, where I don't a leftist group of some kind contacted me to endorse their general strike, right? Yeah. The whole country is going to shut down on Datex, and it's yet to happen, at least in our country. So that's a great question. A couple things. When we uh, voted, and again, this wasn't a decision of myself and the leadership. This was a decision we went back to the rank and file with, to, our, to one of our conventions, 87% of our delegates after our long debate voted to authorize the elected executive board to call for a general strike in the event of a coup 
in the event that there wasn't a transfer of power on January 20th, as the Constitution requires. It was our feeling that in that very specific space and time, in that very specific political climate, um, we would be able to call for such a strike and with a serious amount of work and a serious amount of organizing, pull that off and make that happen. And the thought was if we could do it in Vermont, because the call was for a Vermont general strike, then it could spread to other states, which would be absolutely necessary uh, if there was, uh, if our country descended into a fascist dictatorship of some sort. But generally speaking, when we talk about climate issues, when we talk about the fact that millions of Americans don't have health care or aren't paid livable wages, all of these issues, or at least these issues together, certainly warrant us looking at things like a general strike. But they're a bit, it's a bit pie in the sky to think that, hey, we got 10 great issues that we want to see progress on. We're going to call for a strike and it's going to happen. The infrastructure is not there, nor is the political will within the large labor bodies at this present time. Without participation from organized labor, first of all, I don't think anything's going to happen. So you're going to have to achieve buy-in at a certain level. But even with buy-in from uh, key leaders or even a localized shop stewards, you still need to have infrastructure in place. So one of the things that lacks in the AFL-CIO as a national organization, we don't have an effective network of local union contacts in every shop, on every shift, in every factory uh, that's represented by a union, let alone the majority of workplaces at this point that aren't unionized. So what our top priority is as far as the Vermont AFL-CIO goes over the next two years is to build a network of local union contacts in every single shop and every single shift that we represent folks here in Vermont. So we see this as a way to increase communication. Without communication, you're not gonna be able to pull off mass mobilizations. And, with, and also you're not gonna be able to conduct mass education on issues X, Y, or Z. So over a period of two years, we're looking to build this network that would function not as a one-way means of communication, but almost a, a two or three way. Imagine that this is a way for the rank and file to communicate up to the leaders. This is a way for the leadership to communicate down to the ranks. I mean, down to the lunchroom level of what it means to be in a union shop. And also, uh, ideally, it's gonna be a way for local union leaders to horizontally communicate with each other. Uh, with such a structure in place on a grand scale, on a state scale, on a federal scale, then things like organized general strikes over political issues and social issues become feasible. And even when they're feasible, though, then we still have the political question of, you know, will they be supported by the internationals? Will they be supported by the executive board of the National AFL-CIO? And that's a huge conversation in and of itself. Yeah, it's interesting to me hearing your perspective on this, because my experience with kind of activism um, has been much more of kind of the decentralized and kind of much more recent groups, you know, since Occupy, um, mm -hmm. you were dealing with these these structures that in a lot of cases are, I mean, the AFL-CIO goes back like what, like a century, right? One, one way or the or other. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think um, because of kind of how, uh, shall I say, online, a lot of the discussion about this stuff seems to be organized labor often gets left out. And one of the things that I think is most important when talking about the 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 value that organized labor has in any kind of discussion of a general strike is what happened during the um during the uh the budget uh, uh negotiations or whatever you want to call them in 2019 where you you had 
um, airline workers threatening a general strike that effectively brought an end to a president saber rattling over uh, uh, over the budget. Like it's it's President Sarah Nelson. Uh, yeah, made headlines over that, and that was the right thing to do. Uh, Absolutely, of her, and would love to see her in a stronger position of leadership on the national level. Well, I'm interested because I, I I see a lot of potential in obviously organized labor has had a lot of problems, particularly in the last you know during my lifetime. Um, and I think part of it is what you said earlier. There's it's not as democratic as it should be at most levels. Um, what you guys have done with uh, United is attempting to reform that you know within Vermont. I'm wondering first, how did that kind of come about? You know, 2019 is when you first got got put into office when when the United Slate got put in the, to the office in Vermont. What was kind of the backstory to that? And then my second question is kind of what do you see as necessary to like what what what's what's the fight as you see it to get stuff like that done on a larger scale around the country? So our story in Vermont is probably a lot like the story of organized labor in many different places. Mm-hmm. Our starting point. So in 2017 not that long ago, uh, we had a convention with something like 20 or 25 delegates there. Imagine that, 20 delegates representing, at the time, 10,000, we've grown since then, but 10,000 members. Mm -hmm. And that's called a democracy. So uh, there was a problem, an existential problem. Now, I come out of AFSCME, local 2413 in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. So when I got together with a number of other leaders from different unions, different AFSCME locals, but also United Academics as part of AFT, uh, the building trades, a number of folks, uh, there was a general recognition at the leadership level that something was very wrong. Member participation was weak as can be and things had to change. And we continually as an organization, you know, with some exceptions, hitched our wagon uh, to the shortcomings that are the Democratic Party. So all of these things together led to inactivity, apathy, and and lack of democracy. So we started going around. We started talking with workers. We started talking with shops across the state. And one of the first things that was striking, people would say, they would know what union they're in, be it APWU or AFSCME or whatever it was. But we'd say, listen, we're we're thinking about running a slate, a progressive slate for office to take the AFL-CIO in a new direction. The next thing they would say is, what's the AFL-CIO? Think about that, right? Mm -hmm. Workers involved, some of which were union stewards in their locals, didn't even know what the AFL-CIO was. So that was our starting point. It was an existential crisis of labor. And mind you, during these, uh, what I would call some dark periods, we would often endorse 100 candidates for statehouse, uh, nearly all of which being Democrats. And then we, they would win. They would win their elections. Oh, like largely, our candidates win. And then we'd get nothing in the state house, right? There'd be no labor bill. There'd be no advance in a car check, mm-hmm. different support to organized labor. And yet we keep repeating the same mistake year in, year out, and not figure out that something was wrong. So when we formed the United Slate as a coalition of a number of different unions to recognize it was time for change, we really brought the discussion to the grassroots level. We developed a 10-point program, we call it our little green book. It's now the policy and the uh, platform of the Vermont AFL-CIO. And we ran an organized campaign based on that, right, at a very local level. 
And here uh, we did all the things that, you know, you should be doing the phone calls, the emails, the shop visits, all of this, and created a sense of excitement going into our 2019 convention. Our 2019 convention with over, if I recall, over 105 delegates and alternates uh, was the largest convention we had up here in, in something like 30 plus years. So that was an exciting atmosphere where something was going to be different and something was going to change, right? So we swept, we essentially swept those elections. We won all the seats except for one. We had a follow-up convention in, two, I'm sorry, election in 2020 where we won every single seat. And then in the last election, um, we won all seats uh, except for one, where one person who's a good, good person from the building trades uh, uh, ran but was not part of our state. So uh, the real question is, what have we done in the interim? How are we changing that direction? And how are we changing, trying to seek to change the capacity of labor? And what lessons does it have to the national labor movement, I would suppose? Mm-hmm. So uh, on that front, one of the first things we did is we took money out of our lobbying operation and put it to uh, an organizing department whereby we would hire, and we have hired on-call organizers to assist our affiliates in either new organizing or internal organizing, therefore delivering an actual benefit to our affiliate unions. Now, mind you, we represent just about every sector of workers all across the state, but forever, they they very rarely got in concrete, measurable acts of solidarity uh, from the Federation as such, right? Because all of the, a lot of, too many of the resources were put into lobbying. And we also took a critical eye towards the Democratic Party And uh, recently, we've instead endorsed the Social Democratic uh, Vermont Progressive Party slates in their runs for state house and and statewide office in many cases. So we've done a few things differently. We're continuing to do things differently. We've expanded the size of our executive board. So we elect more leaders now. We've more than doubled the size of the delegates afforded to each local. So we could have more rank and file voices present uh, when we're meeting at a convention. And we've taken a strong um, social justice position where we think that organized labor must work very closely in an alliance, form alliances with groups like Migrant Justice or Black Perspective or um, uh, environmental organizations like 350.org. And we've done those things, worked on their issues where we have common interests, and we've asked them to support us on our issues uh, where, where they may have some common interests. So those are things that are very different that the national AFLCI is not doing. Other state uh, labor federations largely aren't doing enough. And we're hoping now to build that out. And uh, we're engaged in conversations, uh, seeking to form a national progressive caucus within the national AFLCIO. And I, I think that's so important when you talk about kind of on the national level for progressives, uh, number one, to not, not continually... Uh, kind of reflexively support the Democratic Party when the Democratic Party is is failing uh, progressives, which, you know, we have a perfect case study right now in Congress with the uh, the reconciliation bill. Um, it often does seem like such uh, an insurmountable task just because the inability, like a bill, the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill is so widely supported by Americans, but it, it just keeps coming down to this tiny number of folks with uh you know financial interests uh and donors um who are who are mm-hmm. pushing against something that's widely supported and i i feel um optimistic when i look at state organizations like what y'all are doing and the fact that i can see something building 
but I also it it does it is such a titanic task to imagine translating that on a national scale in a way that actually gets us the things that you know we we really can't wait for when you're talking about some of this infrastructure stuff when you're talking about healthcare when you're talking about climate justice like I, I do feel the clock ticking um, and I'm I'm wondering what you see as the hope on the national scale for actually putting some muscle behind the progressive movement. Well, look, it's not just the uh, the issues of the infrastructure bill and the budget bill. It's also the PRO Act, right? The mm-hmm. PRO bill that is language in the Senate. And, and let's not lose track of the fact that uh, those efforts are all stalling and likely, uh, very likely to fail. And I hope they don't because of Democrats, because the Democratic Party is not united. They ran on a platform saying they were going to do X, Y, and Z. And now when they're in a position to carry it out, they are not going to do it. And Joe Manchin, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I call him a class traitor, but I don't think he's ever was part of the working class. Uh, He claims to support the PRO Act, but in the same breath, he, he won't get rid of the filibuster. So, I mean, that's absolute bullshit as far as I'm concerned. So how do we change that? Well, Uh, The National AFL-CIO puts millions and millions and millions of dollars into elections. We have gotten so many of these people elected uh, and back them in Arizona and West Virginia, you name it. And then we get nothing back. If we were to take that money instead and put it into a robust new organizing department or a a recrafted organizing department and actually assign uh, real on the ground organizers in every single state in the country to help our affiliates, to help our state federations and their affiliates to internally organize, to build the kind of network I was talking about before and to be active and build alliances with social justice group, our power would be amplified 5 million fold. This is the way we do it. Politicians aren't gonna do what's right because it's right. Politicians are gonna do what's right when they feel so much pressure that they have to do it. Now, the victories that we saw for working people during the Great Depression under FDR, that wasn't just because FDR thought, you know, this is the right thing to do. It's because people were going on strike, because people were organized, because they were scared of revolutionary change in this country. So turn to meaningful, true um, uh, major reforms as a way to blunt that perceived threat that they have. And that's what we got to get back to, not... Our power is never going to grow from people who are wearing ties in Washington. Our power is going to grow based on our solidarity on the shop floor and in our communities. So that's the direction we got to go. And we got to do that rapidly, very rapidly. It's been clear to me for quite a while, uh, both that the reason workers gain so much in the wake of the Great Depression and the only kind of hope we have for doing that now is um, they have to be scared, you know, to an extent. They have to be scared of of what's arrayed against them, both in its organization uh, and in its ability to disrupt things. Um, and I, uh, I'm wondering what you think people listening, people um, who maybe are not involved in organized labor, like what, what, what do you think people can do to further those ends? Like this is a like when we when we start talking about national level AFL CIO politics, that's not something. I think most people listening feel like they have any kind of ability to influence. Um, what do you think they can influence? What do you think people can be doing to build that kind of capacity? Well, you got to be active and, and you got to engage in the political and social movements. But also, most folks, you know, they're going to have a job of some kind. 
And a lot of folks aren't getting treated the way they should in their job. I don't care if you work in a coffee shop, in a restaurant, or in a gas station, or in manufacturing. And you could start by organizing with your coworkers to form a union today. You know, you could reach out to a local union to ask for help, or you could do it on your own, frankly. But if we're not organized as working people, and we are the 99%, we are most of the world. If we're not organized amongst ourselves, we're not going to be able to become that expression of power that we need to be in order to create the change. If we're just a collection of individuals, then the ruling class, the wealthy, the powerful, the elite, they're going to have all their ducks in a row to keep us divided and to keep uh, their foot on the pedal of the status quo. So we need to come together. We need to organize. And the natural place to organize is in the workplace, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is the natural place to organize. It's also become an increasingly difficult place to organize. We all watch what Amazon did in Bessemer this year, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, and that fight is still ongoing to an extent. Um, but it is, a, it is a continuing challenge um, to, to actually effectively unionize in a lot of the industries where it matters most, you know. Um, sure. Like we have some choke point industries, like we talked about um, aircraft employees that are heavily unionized, thankfully, and that do have a lot of power, as has been demonstrated recently when they when they go to the mat. Um, but I, I, I'm interested in kind of we, we've got, you know, Amazon employees is really one of the areas that I'm looking at where, my God, if, if we could actually if something significant could actually get off the ground and a significant number of those workers could get organized it could mm-hmm. make a real difference, um, but you know you've got uh, effectively what are community organizations for the most part going up against um, you know Amazon at this point has more resources than most nation states. Yeah, but so do the the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the folks like this and and absolutely, and it's always been hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, too long ago in our country, maybe during our grandfather's day, where there was a very good chance you'd be shot or at least beat over the head with a club from the Pinkertons if you tried to organize. Organizing has never been easy. In yeah. countries such as Columbia today, uh, trade unionists are killed at an unbelievable clip almost on a daily basis, and yet still they organize. So it, I'm not suggesting to any of your listeners that hmm. any of this is easy. What sure. I am suggesting is that it has to happen. It has to happen. And there's different models, too. Like in some places, uh, one of the models that's been effectively used is forming worker centers, right? So that's not a traditional union. It's a center in a city or in a community or in a town where workers can come together and strategize, right, at a, in a location to strategize how to be effective as a group, as a whole, as a class on issues that are important to them, you know, be it economic, be it social, be it um, fighting against racism, whatever it may be. Uh, that's a model that I, I suggest folks could could look into as an alternative way. If uh, for whatever reason you don't feel that uh, the time is ripe for a union in your shop today, although it needs to be tomorrow, take a look at Worker Center and see if there's one in your community. Get involved. If not, get together a few people and see what it would take to start one where you live. But one way or another, we have to be organized. We have to come together. We cannot just be a collection of individuals. That's a great point um, and useful information. I think kind of the last thing I wanted to get into um, was one of the things I first learned about your organization that you issued a, a solidarity statement back in, I think it was 2019, um, with uh, the YPG and J in Rojava. Um, 
And you've issued, you know, stated your solidarity with Black Lives Matter, with uh, the Zapatistas, currently what they're undergoing in, in Mexico, um, which is massive repression from the government yet again. Um, and, you know, your support of Palestinian rights and of uh, against sort of the U.S. occupation or not occupation, but a blockade of Cuba. Um, what do you see when we're talking about this struggle, this broad struggle we've been talking about all day? What do you see as the role of internationalism in both in both organizing um, people and organizing resistance? Well, our starting point today is capital is international. So if mm-hmm. we're going to have a foundational challenge to the power of capital, we also have to be internationalists in our outlook. We supported the YPG and the YPJ and uh, the newly elected government in Rojava because they are struggling for economic equity and a direct participatory democracy in that corner of the world. We see this as the most significant revolution in, in the world uh, in generations. I mean, this in, in our mind is on par with the Spanish Civil War and what we saw around Barcelona and the CNT then, or the Paris Commune of 1871. If this was happening in Europe, a day wouldn't go by where this wouldn't be front page news. But in the Western world, uh, we often, uh, the corporate media turns a bli- blind eye to many of those struggles. So they're doing their part. And we have to do our part in our country, too. The Zabatistas are doing their part in Chiapas and in, in broader ways in, in some regards in Mexico as such. But we need to reach our hand out in encouragement and say, hey, we're here to support you. Uh, one of the things we sought to concretely do in the Vermont labor movement is in 2019, when one of our central labor councils passed a resolution in support. We said, look, if you are, go over to fight, and volunteer with the YPG and YPJ, because there's thousands of volunteers right uh, there who have volunteered to go over. If you return and you're American, we'll hook you up with a union job and we'll hook you up with three months of room and board. So you could get reacclimated, you could get back into the community and get back into the local fight through the labor movement. And we were proud to actually uh, have an opportunity to do that for one returning American fighter. In our latest resolution in 2021, and this one was uh, broader because it was the whole Vermont AFL-CIO, not just the Central Labor Council, we again offered, uh, we encourage folks to feel so inclined if they're in that place in their life to volunteer with OIPG and YPJ. And if they're Americans and they come back, we're happy to hook you up. We'll do our best to get you a good union job when you return. So we felt that was a very small, least we could do kind of thing, but concrete way to provide solidarity. Uh, we all have to stand together. It's really one fight, but the place we're going to be effective is where you live locally, in your town, in your city, in your state, and in your country. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on and a great thing that you all are doing, and I, I really do appreciate that. And I appreciate you, David, coming on and talking to us today. Um, is there anything else you wanted to 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 get out or anything you wanted to, like any you know, charities or, or, or mutual aid funds or whatever you wanted to uh, push before we kind of roll out today? I'd just like to push for folks to go to work tomorrow and, and organize. Organize with your fellow workers and let's change the world. Solidarity. Thank you, David. 
Robert Evans here, and I wanted to ask for your help. There is a Portland area woman, Ruba Tamimi. She's an Arabic interpreter and a Palestinian liberation activist, and she is trying to save her home at the moment. Uh, she's got a GoFundMe. If you go to Save Ruba's House, R-U-B-A on GoFundMe, you'll find it. Uh, Save Ruba's House on GoFundMe. If you've got a few bucks, um, she could really use it. Again, Save Ruba's House, R-U-B-A at GoFundMe. Thanks. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. When P.T. Barnum's Great American Museum burned to the ground in 1865, what rose from its ashes would change the world. Welcome to Grim and Mild Presents, an ongoing journey into the strange, the unusual, and the fascinating. In our inaugural season, we'll give you a backstage tour of the complex and unusual artifact that is the American Sideshow. Listen to Grim and Mild Presents now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. After 30 years, it's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit on the podcast 90210OMG. Visit Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind the scenes stories that actually happened. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Listen to 90210OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? I'm Rashad Bilal. And I am Troy Millings, and we are the hosts of the Earn Your Leisure podcast, where we break down business models and examine the latest trends in finance. We hold court and have exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in business, sport and entertainment, from DJ Khaled to Mark Cuban, Rick Ross, and Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, our alumni list is expansive. Listen in as our guests reveal their business models, hardships, and triumphs in their respective fields. The knowledge is in-depth, and the questions are always delivered from your standpoint. We want to know what you want to know. We talk to the legends of business, sports, and entertainment about how they got their start and most importantly, how they make their money. Earn Your Leisure is a college business class mixed with pop culture. Want to learn about the real estate game? Unclear as how the stock market works? We got you. Interested in starting a trucking company or a vending machine business? Not really sure about how taxes or credit work? We got it all covered. The Earn Your Leisure podcast is available now. Listen to Earn Your Leisure on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.